everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am your temporary host, Patrick Rapol, here to talk to you about Tony Scott. And I am joined, of course, by Andrew James. Now, Andrew James, former host of the Cinecast. What are you doing now? Not the Cinecast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just living my life now. Uh, the podcast and the show or the uh, website took a ton of time, mm-hmm. as you guys know. Um, and so when we stopped doing that after 10 years, almost to the day and we, st- and the podcast ended on episode 500, just coincidentally, those two dates lined up. Um, all of a sudden I had a ton of extra time to watch more movies pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> are you, are you saying that you're wasting your life, like spending quality time with your family and stuff <laughs> in- <laughs> instead of, uh, producing content that for the internet? To- yep. Yep, exactly. Oh. And work, oh. like real work. Oh, I feel so sorry work for you. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all those blind spots um, in my movie hole, uh, they're starting to fill. All those yeah. holes are starting to fill in now, which is nice. Now that you can take them on your own terms instead mm. of being like, is this going to be good content for yes. the podcast? Do I have to talk? And what do I have to talk about? And yeah. So yeah. It's, oh, it's funny. It, yeah. I, have, I have not been on a podcast with you. I mean, technically the year end podcast you always send in an audio clip so like we've been on those together technically kind of but yeah. i i don't remember the last time i podcasted with you it ha- it's been years and years and years but it was the uh, it was the soderberg episode oh, on your show really really yeah. that's forever ago and we yeah we talked about sex lies and videotape and traffic and i think we also reviewed um martha marcy may marlene or whatever it's called okay at yeah the time. yeah so yes that was like eight years ago or something. That's funny. I'm the Sean Durkin's next film is just coming to me now from the library. So oh. that's, that's how long it took between <laughs> Martha Marcy May Marlene and the nest. Crazy. Um, but I'm so happy to have you here, especially for Tony Scott, who is a filmmaker. I'm, I'm sort of taking over for Jim as Jim's taking a break from the podcast. And so I had these directors sort of landed in my lap and I was sort of looking at Tony Scott being like, do I, I kind of, you know, I was a teenager when Domino came out, and I, I thought that was cool, and I and I love Crimson Tide, but I don't know about this. And now I've gone through all of his movies, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be so much fun because he's a fascinating filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. Uh, are we? Uh, yeah, so we're. I guess we're just going to go through his entire filmography one by one, which is not usually what the format of this no. podcast is. Um, I think I think for the for this and then for the next one where we do Wong Kar Wai, I'm, I'm oh. just going to go ahead and drop the What We Watch segment and just yeah. do the deep dive. And I think part of what makes that manageable is that they are both filmmakers whose whole filmography is able to be seen. It's not like some old movie. It's not, you know, sometimes you like do some old Hollywood director and it's like, well, before we get to the movies we're talking about, he did 30 years of Westerns for, for Universal <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they have had manageable bodies of work and in tony scott's case uh obviously it's a tragically short body of work because he killed himself in 2012 but like it's also a complete arc um from the beginning to the end he went on an aesthetic journey and so i thought the best way to do him justice was instead of just focusing on two movies to go on that journey with you so um beautiful i i am curious what at what point did you become aware of Tony Scott, like as a, like as a artist, as a force? And because because he makes the kind of mainstream movies where you could have seen four or five of them without realizing 
that they're like necessarily by the same guy. They're just big Hollywood movies. When I saw Top Gun when I was, you know, seven, I didn't think, oh, yeah, here's the Tony Scott movie Top Gun. I just thought, here's the movie with the Jets. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that. I saw Top Gun, but I, at that time, I, didn't, I wasn't focusing on directors really other than maybe spielberg and george lucas i didn't i didn't pay attention to that kind of thing and even through my i don't know most of his career up until maybe like like when i started really paying attention to that stuff around the mid 90s so maybe like crimson tide enemy of the state Mm. Uh, especially when you see the trailers and they say from the creator of top gun you go oh okay (laughs) so uh, I guess that would be sometime in the mid '90s is where I really became aware of him, and then you can't not be aware of him by the by his the you know the end of his career when it's it becomes very auteur and very kinetic. Yeah, that's where I came in because I had seen Top Gun. I might have even seen Crimson Tide at some point, but I wasn't. I didn't get really serious about movies until around like 2004, 2005, mm-hmm. and. I, I mean, when I, when I say serious, I mean started reading about them on the internet and sort of more aware of just whatever I pick up off of you know the library shelf or whatever. And I and when Domino came out, that was like people were talking like Domino. This is Tony Scott has you know everyone's talking about Tony Scott. You know he's lost his mind. Tony Scott is he, he's he's done. He's taking what he did with Man on Fire and he's taking it, it into such a wild new direction. And that was where I sort of began to be aware of like. Oh, this is like part of a body of work. This is not just some, you know, uh, standalone crazy thing that exists. Um, so at that point, I sort of began to be aware of like, oh yeah, I do see the connection between Man on Fire and Domino. And For sure, yeah. Going back to stuff, but um, I do want to get sort of uh, right into it. I have some autobiographical information here, light, uh, just some light background. He was born in Tinmouth or Tinmouth, I, I suppose, in in England. They pronounced the those uh, towns, uh, the mouth is Muth. Tinmouth in Northeast England in 1944. He is the younger brother of Ridley Scott, who we have covered on this podcast before. I'm going to go ahead and say right now, I like Tony Scott better than I like Ridley Scott. Uh, okay. <laughs> you're not okay. I was like, I was ready to take you hand in hand and walk down with me, but you're you're letting me walk down that tunnel uh, alone. No, I'm just terrible at like you just drop that on me, so I sort of okay. have to look at Tony Scott or. Ridley Scott's filmography, like I know Alien and yeah, yeah. Um, I would say I, I don't know. They're okay. they're pretty close. I like I kind of yeah. like both of them for different reasons. For about sure. The same. Yeah. Um. So he did attend uh, multiple art schools. He he was you know he got a degree in fine art. He wanted to be a painter. Um. I think, but he was in 1965 in Ridley Scott's debut short film, Boy and Bicycle, um, which is, I've seen clips of it on YouTube. That one is a little harder to find, but it looks very much like student film. Uh, it's, you know, it's a lot of, you know, just kinetic shots of a guy, kid on a bicycle going under bridges and whatnot. But uh, that is Tony Scott right there um, on the bike. So, Four years later, when he directed his sh- first short film, which was an adaptation of Ambrose Bierce's One of the Missing, um, about a uh, Civil War soldier, Ridley Scott was the star of that. So their oh. careers have always been you know, entwined, uh, even though they, they sort of went slightly different paths. They always worked together and as production companies and stuff like that. And they've, you know, I think, I like to think of them, I think they've remained close but competitive, it seems, <laughs> uh, for... Um, 
But Tony Scott went to the Royal College of Art in London in 1971. He produced his thesis film, Loving Memory. Now, Loving Memory, I have seen. It is on a B- the BFI streaming website. Um, have you seen Loving Memory? I haven't. Nope. So Loving Memory is fascinating. It's about like, I think it's like 12 minutes, 13 minutes, something like that. It's a short film. It's about an old couple who they hit a cyclist and kill him in the road. And what they do is they stuff his body and bike in the trunk um, and you, it, it starts off, you're like, oh, okay, so this is going to be like a death of a cyclist sort of a thing where they're, you know, they're hiding their crime or whatever. But really, they just bring his body up into the attic where the, the wife, who's an, you know, an older woman, she just sort of talks endlessly about their son who died in World War, I think it's World War II, might have been World War I. Um, and she's just very lonely, and she just starts dressing the corpse more and more like her son. Um, and it's this very weird, uh, moody art film kind of a thing. And it's, it's, it, you, you had, there's a little bit of Tony Scott that you would see later in that, um, up in the attic, you see the light coming through the windows and it's just blasting through the windows. It's not a smoked out attic the way a lot of, uh, that his early films would look, but it is, it does have a really good attention to detail. The photography is absolutely beautiful and it is just sort of this darkly humorous, it's there's not you know it's not an action movie. The camera work is very slow and methodical, um, and it is this look. This is the only film he made, uh, or I guess this and one of the missing. Those are the only films he made before he started working in commercials. Um, and it, you do look at it, and you're it's it's so unlike anything else Tony Scott ever did. It does make you think, like, oh, what <laughs> what could have happened? Like, what what road could he have taken um, if he didn't uh, join Ridley Scott's ad company? But he did. Uh, Ridley Scott invited him to work for him. He said, come work with me, and within a year, you'll have a Ferrari. And that's, and that's sort of where Tony would end up. And he worked mostly in ads for the next 15 years. So he had a full, successful career in filmmaking before he was making feature films. Um, in 1975, Ridley and Tony produced an adaptation of Henry James, the author of Beltraffio for French TV. Um, it was a big break for them because they always made ads with the idea of later getting into films. Um, so they flipped a coin to see who would actually get to direct it, and Tony Scott won. So he directed that. Um, I did not had a chance to see the author of Beltraffio, but again, this is a adaptation of a 19th century drama. It's very psychological. Um, it's not the kind of movie you associate with Tony Scott. Um, it was also his first color film, though... Uh, obviously, a uh, television Henry James adaptation from 1975, not necessarily doing the same kind of work he does with color later on in his career. Um, but when you're, we're talking about the sort of time that Ridley Scott and Tony Scott spent um, making ads, I do want to talk about sort of the wave of filmmakers that they were a part of. Um, because in the, I think Ridley Scott was the first person to sort of break through, um, but there was a whole wave of British commercial directors who kind of broke through into Hollywood and kind of redefined what Hollywood movies looked like. Um, I think a lot of the images we have of Hollywood cinema of the 80s, I think the two most influential people are Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, but this sort of wave of British commercial directors is certainly right there behind. So you have Ridley Scott. Um, Obviously, he did The Duelists, which was uh, a critically acclaimed film at Cannes Film Festival, and he followed that up with Alien, which was a massive success. And you know, from there, he was Ridley Scott. And after that, you had Alan Parker, uh, who in the seventies did Midnight Express, um, and would go on to make a very 
all sorts of very strange films, uh, movies like Birdie or Angel Heart, just a uh, very diverse career Alan Parker had. Adrian Lin, um, who directed Fatal Attraction, he directed, his first film was Foxes, which is a pretty good, like, teen girls gone bad movie with uh, Jodie Foster. Um, Hugh Hudson is the director of Chariots of Fire. Um, and uh, Tony Scott, uh, who's Tony Scott. And I think a lot of the things that we associate with early Tony Scott and a little bit of early Ridley Scott as well, it was actually all of these guys were doing it. And I think you'd probably have to go back and do the research and see all of their early commercials to see who came up with the Venetian blind smoked out room light thing first. <laughs> yep. um, but, uh, but you know, you look at an early Alan Parker movie and you see, and it looks, it, it looks just like that. It, it's, it's all smoked out and the colors are desaturated and it has that sort of smeared look to it. So I think um, Tony Scott, uh, you know, he was always this first rate stylist who made beautiful looking movies, but in the first part of his career, that aesthetic wasn't entirely his own. So I did think it was worth mentioning um, those other filmmakers. Yeah, um, but, I, I'm, I'm actually glad you did because I'm, uh, I wasn't familiar with the names, but then when I look up Alan Parker, I've seen almost all of these. Yeah, and they're totally in in line with Tony <laughs> Scott, Tony Scott's visual flair, kind of. Yeah, and if you look up like certain DPs that they worked with, they they would trade DPs and stuff like um, Jeffrey Kimball, who shot Top Gun in a lot of early. Tony Scott movies, he would go on to shoot Jacob's Ladder for Adrian Lin, and Jacob's Ladder has that same kind of look to it. Um, so they they really were like a, a, a film scene unto themselves, though they were a film scene that were, you know, advertising cars and stuff, uh, as opposed to, you know, making romantic comedies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that success that Tony Scott had in the commercial world led in 1982 to get him hired by MGM to direct to direct the vampire movie, The Hunger, um, which is his first feature film. Um, Hunger starring David Bowie and Susan Sarandon and uh, Catherine Deneuve. Um, What what do you think about The Hunger, Andrew? Well, it's clear, this is the one that just is completely different. Well, not completely different, but it seems to be set aside from the rest of his filmography. Like this is the one that it sticks out like a sore thumb, probably because it is just his first film. Um, I, I don't think it's like a like a good movie necessarily, mm-hmm. um, but it was really fun to watch. I'd seen it before, but I didn't really remember it, or maybe I wasn't paying attention before. Um, but I just watched it a couple days ago, and it's really fun to watch because you can see. Um, all of these influences, all of these people that influenced him, and also all of these movies that came later that were influenced by this look. Like, it this movie feels a little bit like Blade Runner at times, yeah. um, but it also has like John Woo face off um, <laughs> vibes. It's, it's super, it's super strange. And then, and because it's so like kind of artsy and just being weird. It almost has like a Lynchian vibe mm-hmm. to it too. So it's, it's, it's a sort of mix of all these great directors and somehow I'm not saying he was influenced by them because a lot of that stuff came out way after the hunger, but still I was seeing all of these, these things in this movie that reminded me of all of these other things. And I, there was tons of them. Like it just kept going as I was watching the movie and it, that was what kind of captivated me. Mm-hmm. 
one of, one of one that he has cited as a direct uh, influence was Nicholas Rogue, who directed Performance um, and crucially The Man Who Fell to Earth, starring David Bowie. Oh yeah. Um, and something Nicholas Rogue would do a lot is Nicholas Rogue was very experimental with his editing. And I think in these early Tony Scott movies, one of the ways that Hunger stands out is there's a lot of weird expressive editing where he implies a sort of psychic connection between characters while they're in different scenes doing different things. And it's all done via the editing. And that's very much like performance and stuff like that. Um, right. It, 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 it like kind of feels like a, a lot of it feels like a nineties music video. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's in the (laughs) eighties, the, the funny thing is it still feels like someone who is trying to prove like, Oh, I can make, you know, artsy films. I can make intellectual, like I'm, this is a film about something. Um, but the stuff that really works about it is the commercials aspect is the set design and the, you know, the, the costumes and the makeup. Like it is so in 1982, like Goff was a full blown subculture, but it hadn't really broke through into the mainstream. There were not mall goths really in 1982. If you were goth, you really had to be dedicated to it. Um, and obviously Bauhaus opens the movie. So like there, you know, there's full goth rock bands are in the movie. So he's acknowledging that subculture. And I think, uh, Tony Scott having worked in commercials was very familiar with the fashion worlds and with the, you know, different subcultures and things of that. Cause he had, you know, when you're working in commercials and ads and stuff, you want to have your ear to the ground is what the new hot trendy thing is. You're not necessarily out there to tell your own stories. You're there to sell something as sexy and cool. So you have to know what is sexy and cool. And like the hunger is so goth. And it, it's like the, the little, you know, teenage goth inside of me was just like so excited when they had, <laughs> they had like, it's like a Coke spoon around their neck, but instead of a spoon, it's a blade that they use to cut their necks and like drink, cut the victim's necks and drink the blood. Um, uh, I, I, I'm glad you brought up Nicholas Rogue too, because one of the things uh, my wife was watching it with me and she's like, this would be a good movie to be remade. And I said, yeah, it totally would. Who would, who would direct it? And the two names that came up for me would be, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn mm. could remake this or, or Peter Strickland from yeah. like Barbarian Sound Studio. And, um, so like you think of like the Neon Demon or, um, only God forgives and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Like I feel like those guys were directly influenced by something like this. It's it's so funny. I think, yeah, I, when Nicholas Rinding Refn, I feel like his stars fade and people don't talk about him as much anymore. But when he was like the hot, exciting thing, I never heard Tony Scott's name mentioned, but like when you bring it up, it's like, Oh yeah. Like totally movies like only God forgives. And you know, they're not, and you know, the driver's obviously taking from Walter Hill, uh, sure. and stuff like that. But it like, it's, there's also just that drenched eighties thing that is, you know, I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of the eighties has been so overmined for like cultural throwbacks and, and kitsch and nostalgia and like every possible take parody, um, that everything just becomes generically, you know, capital T capital E the eighties. And no one gets any credit for what those aesthetics actually are. But if you look at the 80s as a whole, like the thing that had, that's still, when you go on Shudder, there's still, every three weeks, there's some slasher movie that's trying to look like it's from the 80s. Yep. Um, like, that's Tony Scott. <laughs> um, 
I will say for the hunger, I was also excited to see because I'd never seen it before, and I was excited to be watching it for the first time during June because it's Pride Month, and I was like, "Cool, lesbian vampire movie, oh, yeah. let's go!" <laughs> yeah, um, and it's it's like uh, it's a little unfortunate if you if you take it as a queer story, then the story is there's the corrupting lesbian who seduces uh, and sort of mesmerizes this woman into a deviant lifestyle, who and then that woman goes on to kill herself rather than be part of it. So it's like, okay, this is not necessarily <laughs> gay empowerment by any means. But something that is fascinating about The Hunger in terms of uh, the gay subculture is that it came out in, or it came out in 1983, um, but it, uh, he was hired in 1982 to make it. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it's a 1983 film. That is right on the cusp where I don't know for sure whether or not anyone involved was thinking about AIDS because AIDS for a long time was sort of under-researched and, you know, if you were gay, you, you know, there were rumblings about things that it had a different name at some point that it was, it was just considered the gay disease that didn't have the name AIDS. And depending on when the project came together, when Tony Scott came on, when they started filming, when they started editing, all these things... I don't know if anyone was ever at any point thinking about AIDS, but it's really hard. But it, if they, but it's possible because it's like right on the cusp, and it's really hard to go back and look at now without thinking about AIDS because it is about like this uh, affliction that is transferred through blood, and mm-hmm. the blood is transferred through this through this gay sexual act, and there are like elaborate scenes of these scientists in their lab looking at the blood, trying to figure out what the hell is going on, which was actually happening, you know in America at the time. And so it is actually, again, if, if it was, if it was a raw, raw, you know, you know, lesbian power movie, it would be, (laughs) it it might feel a little nicer or whatever, but like, it's impossible to not get a little extra power just by thinking about it as an allegory to AIDS. Yeah. And I, I think there's been vampire movies that have not tackled AIDS necessarily, but certainly blood like making blood a disease or whatever and um yeah that that's kind of interesting when you when you put that into into this story i didn't i didn't really think about that because um i mean her other i don't know what you want to call them victims or whatever like david bowie Mm -hmm. that was a heterosexual relationship so i was looking at more like just straight up vampire rather than male female but um and also the the female part was super eroticized in this. Oh yeah. Like it's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's the kind of thing where you look at it and it's hard to tell exactly like, is this what Tony Scott thinks is sexy or is this what Tony Scott thinks is like artistic or is this what MGM said? Like, cause you have to imagine this is a scene that there were 17 meetings about. And at certain point, I'm sure someone had ideas of like, well, you know, when lesbians have sex, they use their hands. Like that there's, it's like, no, 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 we can't do that. It's too graphic. This is a mainstream film because it's, it is a very like uh male oriented view of yeah, two women having sex where it's like nothing below the waist is going on. Cause that's not where the man's mind is, <laughs> it's just like, it's, but it is, but whatever it's like, what, it, you know, but it, I mean, you, if you look at, Tony Scott's other sex scenes, particularly the one in Top Gun, mm-hmm. I mean, it's pretty intimate, I guess. And in, in it's in your face. It's still art artsy, yeah, for for the time, you know, in, in the eighties artsy kind of way. Um, but they're they're pretty similar. And Days of Thunder has that too. Um, I think so, I think I, I think a, a Top Gun is one that the studios made him add 
so that was one that he was just sort of, it wasn't necessarily part of his vision. But I do like, if, if you're just talking about like Tony Scott's sex scenes, like I think the one in True Romance is really beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think the one in uh, Days of Thunder is a little bit more like, the thing about Tony Scott is he's a stylist, but he like really cares about character. And I do think one thing I appreciate about his sex scenes is that they tend to come from character or they they can they tend to come from an idea of some sort. I guess Domino is more just like the idea of excess than necessarily anything else. But um, yeah, no, Hunger's Hunger's a really cool movie. It's it's just amazing to look at. I real I kind of think it's a there's a perfect self contained movie um, in David Bowie's sort of arc. Yeah. Um, the reveal of the attic, which if you haven't seen The Hunger, I'm going to go ahead and just save that reveal for you. It's so amazing, and it just like blew my mind. I was just like, "Oh no!" <laughs> <laughs> um, and and it's I think maybe the problem of the movie is that like that's the story, and then you have the Susan Sarandon thing sort of happening after that, and the right. ending got messed with um, after the fact by the studio to the point where the last shot of the movie kind of nullifies everything that happened in a way that's confusing, but well, and you mentioned set design and, and makeup and stuff, but that, yeah, that lasts like 10 minutes or something. just in terms of thriller level makeup um, was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's Tony, Tony Scott does the smart thing where, um, or I mean, you're, you're talking about like the, the climax of the movie, like all the, like all the know. skull. Yeah. All the skulls. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 Morphing and stuff. And, I even think, and I usually hate old age makeup, but I usually I think that Tony Scott does a good job of hiding the old age makeup behind the sunglasses, and he shoots you know David Bowie behind curtains and things like that. The hat um, in a way that like I found Dick Smith's old age makeup uh, very convincing. Also, a very funny side note: Dick Smith is not credited with special makeup effects; he's credited with special makeup illusions <laughs> which I, it's like if this is going to be the most pretentious film of tony scott's career then perhaps it's, it's fitting that it has the most pretentious title card of tony scott's <laughs> career um but after the hunger uh came out it failed in twofold uh critics thought it was kind of empty and and shallow and it, it was too weird and off-putting for mainstream audiences. So it was just a total failure. He went back to the world of commercials. Um, specifically in 1983, he did a commercial for Saab called Nothing Comes Close that features a Saab car racing alongside a Saab jet, you know? Um, and that was the commercial that Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson saw. Um, and then along with some of the other stuff he did, like The Hunger and his TV work, they hired him to do Top Gun. Um, Top Gun's 1980. I didn't. I forgot to write it down in my notes, but I'm pretty sure Top Gun's 1986. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Top Gun, a movie that is like I kind. I like in spite of myself. I look at it and I go, "This is a terrible object that shouldn't exist." But I kind of kind of enjoying watching it. Uh, yeah, this is the one I've probably seen the most times. Like, I, as a young man, I, we watched this movie over and over and over on VHS all the time, um, and I love it. And uh, there's all sorts of stuff to get into with this one. But when, when we're talking about Tony Scott, one of the things I like to talk about is making sort of blank, blanket statements about his entire filmography within each movie. So um, like one of the things I, I noticed throughout his filmography is how stuff doesn't work this way. Like this isn't how fighter school is. This isn't how fighter jets work. And you right. can, you can, 
say that about almost everything in any of his movies. And I don't mean like in an action sort of way, like, oh, that that would never happen or that's not plausible. I'm talking about the entire concept of the movie. This isn't this isn't how it works. And I love that about it. So like with Top Gun, um, you know, I, I remember watching a, a documentary or the making of at one point and they were interviewing the the military commanders that were down there helping make the movie and tony scott would say well can you make him do barrel rolls and stuff and and do flips and stuff and the guy's like well we don't really do that and tony scott's like well just just do it anyway and that's what is so fun about the movie well there's a lot of fun about the movie but in terms of the the aerial acrobats and flying and stuff like it's not what fighter pilots do they aren't going upside down and hitting the brakes and flying right by and doing all these barrel rolls and stuff like this it's just not how it works but it wouldn't be as much fun of a movie if he didn't do that. And uh, I love, I love that. It's a movie that fully knows that it is. It's like, this is a sports movie. This mm-hmm. is the way sports movie works. There's a reason people like sports movies and we're not going to try to break the mold just because this sports movie happens to be also a Navy recruitment film, which is the thing that I really look at and I go like, Oh, this is like um, America. I think recently, in the, I, I forget. I don't forget the whole timeline or whatever. But America has a really bad problem with military spending, and we recently dedicated. I, I, I'm going to get all the numbers wrong, but like tr- multiple trillions of dollars over the course of however many years to the F-35 fighter jet, which is a jet that serves no purpose and doesn't actually work as advertised. And every time you see a news story like that, I think to my, I like, I just think to myself. Yeah, that's Top Gun. That's yeah, like, exactly. Like, like, it would it be so easy to just sink all the fucking money into all of these, you know, all all of this erotic t- uh, military technology if there wasn't a movie like Top Gun that is so present in the culture? <laughs> so, so I'm like watching this, and I'm like, I think this is like, there's a lot of movies that are rah rah military. There's a lot, especially in the '80s. There's a lot of jingoistic, you know. Uh, Cold War Hollywood films that are all about how America is great and the Russians are scary and evil. But, like, I don't know if any of them are as successfully evil as Top Gun is. Yeah, didn't, like, it, didn't like, uh, naval recruitments or applications just, like, quadruple or something uh, like that? They skyrocketed. They literally would have set up Navy recruitments, like, inside of movie theater lobbies. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, that's the thing about this movie is the reason you're able to make this movie is because you get that footage of the actual fighter jets. There's a lot of radio-controlled stuff. There's some... Um, you know, there, there's some models, uh, there's a little bit of blue screen, you know, uh, com- visual compositing or whatever, but for the most part, what you're seeing in that movie is actual fighter jets doing actual crazy maneuvers. And like, there is, a, and, and what's crazy is they're shot like it's a car commercial. Like you also see like these, this beautiful car that, um, uh, oh shoot, who, who plays the teacher? Uh, Kelly McGillis. Kelly McGillis yeah. drives this like amazing like Porsche from the '60s, and and Tom Cruise has this like absolutely beautiful motorcycle that like that movie made that motorcycle that was like a new product, and then that became like the biggest selling motorcycle in the industry. Like, and then you have these fighter jets, and they're all shot the same way. Like, they're all like these are objects of desire. Don't you want this? And and you see the footage. Like, there's some of, some of the. Some of this, you know, footage that they get where there's, you know, multiple fighters going in and out of the frame and they're sort of 
swinging back and forth. Like you look at it, you're like, this is spectacular. Yeah, I yeah. kind of do. Yeah. <laughs> and what's what's really cool about it is it he's able to maintain like a sense of of space. Like I know where these guys are going, which is crazy. Because they are going all over the place. The camera cuts to different planes going different directions. Mm-hmm. And aside from maybe the the crazy fight climax, all of the all of the test runs that they're doing at the school mm-hmm. and all that stuff, you know where everybody is and where they're going and what they're doing. You actually learn whether it's real or not. You learn about the the wingman and following, you know, following orders and going where wherever they're supposed to go and you can see it, and you're never lost. You're, I never look around and go, "What is going on?" Yeah. I know exactly what's going on. It's that. It's that. It's it's like one of the quintessential, like quote unquote, perfect Hollywood scripts where it's very broad and it's and its message is extremely simplistic, and none of the characters are three dimensional. But like every single scene exists to tell the story in the and every single fight that they have at Top Gun like is about Tom Cruise's character and the progress and Anthony, the way Anthony Edwards dies, like even just that specific accident that happens is a perfect, you can't blame yourself, but I understand why you blame yourself sort of fluke thing that like, I, that's honestly, that's the thing that has always stuck with me from when I first watched this movie when I was seven or whatever, was the guy ejecting right into the cockpit. Like, um, Mm -hmm. Like there's just every beat of it is doing the exact thing it's meant to do, even if the exact thing it's meant to do is not necessarily uh, some grand, ambitious, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, piece of um, you know genius. No, it's all there to look cool. I mean, when these guys aren't flying planes and shooting stuff up, they're playing volleyball and they're oh, going man. to the bar and they're riding motorcycles around, and that's all they all they do is have fun. Yeah. And so I can see guys coming out of the theater and going, where do I sign? <laughs> yeah. And 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 I will say, uh, Top Gun, part of its reputation is like, oh, it's so funny because it was the 80s. They didn't know how gay it was. Tony Scott was mainly influenced by the photography of Bruce Weber, who was a fashion, a gay fashion photographer from New York City who shot along with a lot of, you know, major clients, you know, he shot Calvin Klein ads, he shot this ad, this ad. Like, he also did erotic gay photography. Um, And, like, in the making of documentary on the DVD, they're not hiding it. Like, you see footage from Bruce Weber's book, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's Val Kilmer, that's Tom Cruise, that's... (laughs) So, like, so... So I'm sure not everyone involved with the making of the movie knew, but Tony Scott knew what he was doing. He knew that it's like, okay... We already like we said we said F sixteen. We got the guys in the seats, but like we're gonna get the women in the seats too. We're gonna have this. We're gonna have Tom Cruise and his tidy whities in the locker room. Mm-hmm. Like it is. It is a four quadrant movie in the most classic Hollywood sense. So I do want to address anyone who thinks that is accidentally gay. It is not accidentally gay. You are meant to drool over these men. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's not even. Like once you know it's there and you're looking for it, it's crazy how much homoeroticism is in this. I mean, yeah. he even they have the bet in the bar, you know, about who he's gonna sleep with tonight. And he's gonna go for Kelly McGill, and he says, "But this time it's got to be with a woman," <laughs> implying that he's had a sexual relationship with a man before that he picked up in a bar. And there's all sorts of weird looks and weird things that they say to each other when Tom Cruise in that scene you mentioned, where he's in his tidy whities like shaving or whatever tom scarrett walks in and kind of 
brushes his hand across his back a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Touches his shoulder, and they there's all of these lines of dialogue um, in the school between the pilots where they say pretty weird things. Well, the, and, I think, and very seductively they say it. It's it's yeah. straight up in your face. And like and like part of it is like yes they they made sure to have a certain number of locker room scenes so you would see Tom Cruise's body because he's the hot actor and we love him yeah. or whatever. But I do think there is something even in straight men that is the fantasy of being a fighter pilot. When you think of it's like the fantasy of being a cowboy. It's like the fantasy of being a rock star. The fantasy of someone who is totally untethered by the daily grind and bullshit that you you know, associate with your, you know, banal actual life. Like part of that is they are so masculine and they are, they are literally flying these fucking jets, like fighting the Russians. Like there's nothing more manly than that. And their and their heterosexuality is so beyond question that they can have something that I think probably a lot of straight men are, ner- you know, uh, have certain anxieties about, which is like close intimate relationships with other men. Mm-hmm. And like the move, the reason the movie works is because Anthony Edwards and Tom Cruise love each other. And it's not, it's not romantic, but like they are brothers and their central relationship is like the thing that makes everything click into place for me and makes me go, I'm, I'm really enjoying watching this movie because Anthony Edwards is just, he is, it's just pitch perfect. It's like, I don't know how to describe it other than it's great casting. And obviously that that's going to keep copping up again and again in Tony Scott's movies, partially because that is like a major Jerry Bruckheimer thing. Jerry Bruckheimer movies always have the most amazing casts in them. Like I, I watched to as sort of a compare and contrast thing when, uh, to prepare for this podcast, I watched the rock Michael Bay's film. And that's a movie where every single tiny part is cast by someone who's like, Oh, that's a great character actor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this movie's full of that. Um, I, I don't think I became super aware of. Maybe I just wasn't looking for it. Maybe I was blind. Maybe I was too young. Whatever. I wasn't aware of all the homoeroticism really until. Um, the, I don't know if you've seen Noah Baumbach's Kicking and Screaming. Um, Quentin Tarantino, who will probably come up in this podcast at least a couple more times, he has a cameo in that movie where he lays out the plot of Top Gun and about how it's not about fighter pilots. It's about a man struggling with his own homosexuality. Like it's on right. YouTube. Everybody talks about oh, it. Oh yeah. Um, I, th- I think that that's an YouTube Eric. It's great. I, I can't remember the name of the movie. I think it might be an Eric Stoltz directed film. I don't think it's kicking and screaming, but like that scene that you're talking about is the thing that yeah. uh, anyone who, you know, uh, I think the advocate, the, the the gay magazine, like listed Top Gun as like the greatest gay film of 1986. So like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, the people who knew already knew, but that was when everyone knew. Was when that Quentin Tarantino did that scene. As far I was just listening to a podcast talking about the history of that scene, and apparently that speech is something that um, Roger Avery used to do all the time at parties. Like he would he would like uh-huh. gather a bunch of people and he would and he would do that whole speech. And part of their big falling out, uh, Tarantino to Avery, is that Tarantino did that in a movie and took credit for it. And Avery's like, you know what? That's the last straw. They just like stop talking to each other. Oh. Oh, um, but I definitely, I definitely don't think when I was seven, I had any inkling of that. But uh, that scene is famous for a reason and correct. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Top Gun's a really cool movie. But again, like I look at it politically and I just go, oh, this is evil. <laughs> this is this is really bad. This is against everything I believe in. Um, but at the same time, you know, what, what am I going to do? I think I think the thing about Tony Scott's movies, uh, and this this also extends to Quentin Tarantino for a large extent, is 
they are indulgent in ways that are they just go beyond the pale and you're like this is maybe not should not exist but like it's but it just makes you feel good because it's so indulgent um yeah i mean and you throw in the harold faltermeyer score and uh kenny loggins and it just fits in with the speed and the and the sleekness and the coolness of everything um it's just all these pieces come together to make that movie just super fun yeah um, I do want to so a, a couple notable things about Top Gun. It was the first time that Scott worked with cinematographer Jeffrey Kimball, who I mentioned a little earlier as the cinematographer for Jacob's Ladder. He he would also shoot Beverly Hills Cop 2, Revenge, and True Romance uh, with Tony Scott. It was where Tony Scott first worked with editor Chris Lebenson, who would go on to edit Beverly Hills Cop 2, Revenge, Days of Thunder, Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, Deja Vu, Taking the Pelham 123, and Unstoppable. So he worked with him throughout his whole career. Um, and it was the first time that Scott worked with Jerry Bruckheimer, who, um, up until his very last movie, he would on and off be working on Jerry Bruckheimer movies. Jerry Bruckheimer and Tony Scott, that is a match made in heaven in terms of sensibility. And the you, you can't make a Tony Scott movie unless you have a lot of money behind it. And you can't have a lot of money behind a project unless it's got – unless it's planned to be a huge hit. And so, like – you don't get to make enemy of the state unless you have someone like Jerry Bruckheimer behind it going, Oh, I know what we'll do. We'll put Will Smith in it. And suddenly this, uh, this sort of dour, uh, homage to the conversation becomes a big Hollywood blockbuster. So the fact that Jerry Bruckheimer and Tony Scott first worked together on Top Gun, that sort of spelled both their destinies. Um, speaking of Jerry Bruckheimer, Jerry Bruckheimer is the producer of Beverly Hills cop. And therefore, Beverly Hills Cop 2, which is a bad movie. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. That, that came out in 1987. Beverly Hills Cop 2 is a movie where no one involved really wants to be there. It is so shaggy. It is the. It feels like it went into production before there was a full script, and they just sort of said, and then at this point, Eddie will make it funny. So a lot of scenes just go on way too long as Eddie Murphy does his Eddie Murphy thing. And I, I love Eddie Murphy in the 80s. I think he's just so charming and so funny and so quick but like i turns out i have a limit to how much eddie murphy improvisation i want to deal with um and uh in beverly hills cop 2 passes it before it's half over um it it's also a movie that tony scott is not engaged in at all and it looks good like bridget nielsen has like four different pairs of sunglasses that all look so fucking 80s you can't believe it um it's got the it's got the smoky you know police stations. It's got the light coming through the Venetian blinds. It's got the smeary uh, orange sunsets. I will say because we're going to be coming back to this uh, with a true romance in 1993. It's a movie that starts in Detroit and ends up in L.A. And in Beverly Hills Cop Two, they both look identical. Detroit looks like L.A. because in Detroit, Axel Foley is driving around this crazy Ferrari, and he made sure to make sure that he shot him at Magic Hour at sunset while he's tearing around Detroit in this Ferrari, because again, it's not about the story being told. It's just about how cool can I make it look? So that's why Beverly Hills cop two kind of sucks. Um, and it's not really a notable film in either, uh, Eddie Murphy or, um, Tony Scott's filmography. Yeah. I didn't even get around to rewatching it. I mean, I saw it when I was a kid and I don't know how they made a Beverly Hills cop three, which is also just terrible. I was planning, I had never seen Beverly Hills Cop 2, and so I rewatched the first one, and then I watched two, and I'm like, you know, I kind of can just 
two is so lazy, but I kind of just enjoy it a little bit. Maybe I could go ahead and watch three, and <laughs> I cannot. I did it, not end up watching it. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Um, and I, I like the first one. Who directed the first? That's Martin Brest. Oh, okay. Who had gone to direct uh, Midnight Run and um, some other ones? But he is—he's Martin Brest is definitely a journeyman. Like that—that that first Beverly Hills Cop movie is. I know to stand back and let Eddie Murphy be Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Um, one thing I will say about how bad Tony Scott is in Beverly Hills Cop Two, in terms of how disengaged he is from like telling a story, is that because he likes that high contrast, like faces half in shadow, smoky kind of style, mm-hmm. and the fact that the main character is black, there are literally multiple scenes where you can't see Eddie Murphy's face entirely because he's not lit right. <laughs> Because he's in scenes with white actors, and the white actors have the Tony Scott look, but when you get someone with a darker skin tone, it's like, oh, all you see are teeth and eyes, and it's kind of gross, and it's not just Tony Scott, and it's not just this movie, it's actually like a common Hollywood problem or whatever, but that was like one of the things I go, okay, this is a guy, this is Tony Scott not giving a fuck, because clearly he he made a ton of movies with uh, black leads later on, and you know, never had those problems, so Mm -hmm. that's Beverly Hills Cop 2, 1990. Uh, he made Revenge. This is a project that bounced around for a while before it landed in Tony Scott and um, Kevin Costner's laps. Um, at one point, John Huston and Walter Hill uh, were going to direct it, um, but it ended up being Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner wanted to direct it himself, but he was convinced that he wasn't ready, so they got Tony Scott. What, how do you feel about Revenge? I, it's his worst movie. Well, okay. I mean, outside of maybe Beverly Hills Cop 2, which, I again, I didn't rewatch, but and I, I love Kevin Costner. Like I'm you a do. Kevin Costner apologist. Oh yeah, big time. Okay, um, so that's but, where that's where we divert paths wildly. Then, <laughs> but but we're not going to divert here because this movie. So first of all, okay, I did not rewatch it because I rewatched it maybe like a, a year year and a half ago and hated it all over again. I watched this movie when I was a teenager. I rented it. Um, and I remember going, I don't like this movie. And so about a year and a half ago, I said, you know, I'm older now. Maybe there was something I was missing at the time. And I love Costner now and I love Tony Scott. So let's rewatch this. And this movie, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's boring. It's not particularly well performed. I mean, it, it looks good, I guess it looks like (laughs) there's that one dinner scene where there's 150 candles at the table. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got the Tony Scott look um, for earlier in his career. But um, now my question was, apparently there's a there's a director's cut that's like 20 minutes longer or the sorry, maybe it's the theatrical cut that's actually longer and the director's cut is shorter, which is weird. That's not usually the case. Well, Tony Scott was not, you know, Tony Scott was a a gun for hire on this one and he thought that they should just get to the revenge a lot quicker and that it, it just dallies too long with Kevin Costner and um, uh, what's his name? Oh, from, uh, from everything he played, he played, he played every non-white ethnicity that could exist. Miguel Anthony oh, Anthony Quinn. Yeah. Yeah. There's like way too much Kevin Costner and Anthony Quinn. And so they did a home video director's cut where Tony Scott cut out like 20 minutes of that stuff. For me, this is a movie that some people who are defenders of it say it's an interesting look at toxic masculinity. It's got, you know, it's got his, it's it's got uh, some passion and heat to it. For me, it's like Kevin Costner is so badly miscast. I can't see anything else. I don't 
generally like Kevin Costner anyway, but like in some movies he can't hurt it. You know, like JFK has energy to spare. So the fact that I find Kevin Costner not exciting is not really a factor. This is a movie where he just looks so disinterested and I, I can't do revenge. So this is my least favorite uh, Tony Scott movie as well. Um, yeah, I, I just remember like Miguel Ferrer's character comes in just out of the blue Yeah, and, and, and he's there for like 10 minutes and then he's gone and it, that moves along a, a really boring ass plot. Um, I don't remember all the details. I just remember being kind of pissed off that it, it doesn't flow well at all. Yeah, it's 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 so bloated. I think um, I it so I'm just kind of going by my letterbox review and some some comments I made in there and I I, I noted that it it could have worked maybe as like and it, this is maybe cliche but as like a 6 hour mini series. Like maybe make it more epic and drawn out and actually have some depth to the characters. Right. Um and it it could be interesting I guess that way. Especially because there is this like hint that you're going to get some sort of look at the process of how the drug trade in Mexico influences the politics of Mexico. There's like some hints at sort of, oh yeah, and then there, you're going to get a look at the corruption, and it just really doesn't manifest. It's just it has it no over, yeah. And like, um, does it? So the whole revenge thing is here: is Kevin Costner steals this drug lord's wife, right? And it happens in like a minute or something, and he's. Like he's just a stupid person, but they set the movie up as he's not a stupid person. He's a rather intelligent guy, ha- and a good character, and he just makes the, this is the dumbest thing ever. Well, it has did. to be. You have to believe that he is so overwhelmingly just horny uh, for the, for the lead. I forget the name of the the lead actress, but like Ma- he's Madeline Stowe. Madeline Stowe. You have to believe that they are just like so unbelievably like passionate for each other that they override all their good senses. But like Kevin Costner's not that guy. Kevin Costner, he has a cocky grin for you, but Kevin Costner's not going to blow up his own life uh, for sex. He's yeah. He's, and, and a subjective note, I don't, I, I don't like Madeline Stowe. So yeah, there's she, that too. Like she's just miscast. I don't, I don't know, but that's just me. Um, the same year though, he made days of thunder, which is not also not a great movie, but a much better one. Yes. Um, basically Top Gun on and NASCAR. Uh, the interesting thing about this movie is that it's actually a little bit, it's not just an ad for NASCAR the way Top Gun's an ad for the Navy. It is. It, it gets into a little bit interesting uh, angles of corruption and, and sort of uh, rate driver endangerment and stuff like that that you look at. It's like a little critical of NASCAR in a way that you don't expect of a movie that's, you know, officially licensed. Um. This this is another movie though where I think the lead is miscast because Tom Cruise he's supposed to be the character is supposed to be very prickly like he he's so convinced that he's the greatest driver that it doesn't even matter that he doesn't know the difference between NASCAR and the F1 stuff that he was doing it's like I'm just the greatest driver it doesn't matter and it's about him and Robert Duvall who is sort of the guy leading his pit crew and teaching him how to drive NASCAR it's about them like developing a trust and a bond uh, with each other in the way that Maverick needed to be less cocky um, and learn to trust his wingman and and his team and stuff like that. Um, in fact, I think a lot of Tony Scott movies, that is a running theme. It's like, a, it's a vital importance that two characters grow to trust and respect each other. Um, and that's how they sort of escape with their lives. And so this follows that, but Tom Cruise is just not that he's not enigmatic. <laughs> he, he is, you know, he's just, 
Uh, he isn't uh, hard to like. He's he's just so charming and and sweet, right. and so he it's a little miscast here. But uh, and you know, also, you're right. About, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say you're right about how Tony Scott's movies, like all of the besides the sort of learning to trust each other, all of the main characters, just off the top of my head, they're always they're they're extremely flawed in one way or another they're yeah. an alcoholic or they they have you know they assault their wife or um they have past demons whatever and you're supposed to have that with um robert duvall and i guess it works a little bit with duvall but with Cruz, it doesn't work so much like he's like you said he's not it's hard to see him as flawed because he's tom Cruise. um that tom Cruise in 1990 and, specifically yeah i mean that worked in top gun yeah. Um, but in this, in this film, yeah, I think maybe you're right that it's just a little bit miscast. And also you mentioned that it's Top Gun in cars. Once you realize that that's the p- biggest problem with this movie. It's so hard to watch this movie and not just go, God, what a Top Gun ripoff it is. Like the entire plot is the same. Yeah. Um, I, though, to be fair, uh, this is one of those movies that the script wasn't finished when they started making it. Where scenes were the day they would shoot them, they would be written that morning. Um, apparently, in certain scenes, Tom Cruise would have his lines like on a piece of paper on the windshield as he was driving, but then he got into a car accident, so they started feeding him his lines via earpiece. <laughs> so, like, that's the kind of mo- like, so the fact that it kind of feels a little formless and it doesn't have that perfect structure the Top Gun has makes a lot more sense when you realize, like, yeah, this is a movie that came in extremely hot. They didn't exactly have everything worked out before they went into it. And I think Tony Scott said something along those lines about where he really learned a lesson there, where he's never going to do that again. I I seem to remember an interview with him saying, from now on, we're going to have the full story before we go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Seems fundamental, but I'm glad he learned it. Yeah. Um, uh, I I do want to say also about Days of Thunder, it was the first time he made a movie with Hans Zimmer, um, who Hmm. would, of course, go on to score True Romance, Crimson Tide, The Fan. Um, and just a ton of other Jerry Bruckheimer movies. Uh, um, it was the first time he worked with cinematographer Ward Russell, who shot The Last Boy Scout and Unstoppable. Um, and uh, it was where Scott Tony Scott met his wife Donna. Um, so that and she has little tiny roles in most of his movies from then on, um, just sort of in the background or whatever. So, and, you know, and. To be honest, though, I like Days of Thunder. I still gave it like three and a half. Uh, it's still fun. The the race car stuff is great. I yeah. Robert Duvall is awesome, just always. Um, and so it's it's pretty watchable. And then you get just like the ridiculous stuff, like the the wheel, the wheelchair race, and then they rent cars and have a race through town, which is ridiculous. But that's that's what makes the whole movie fun. Um, so I, I like all that stuff. It's yeah. it's an entertaining watch. It's not terrible because it's a ripoff or it wasn't done perfectly. It's still watchable. No, it turns out when you rip off a movie that has an immaculate structure, even if your version, even if your structure isn't quite as immaculate, it it just works. Um, and it's impossible to hate a movie that has the line "We look like a monkey fucking a football out there," <laughs> which, <Yes>. is, <laughs> which is <laughs> honestly like I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so hard at the way Randy Quaid delivered that. Um, and one of the notes I also had was that Tony Scott tends to remake his own movies sometimes, besides just this and and Top Gun, or or the movies that he's making are 
either actual remakes of another movie or a or a sort of a sort of a sequel like enemy of the state like you said is sort of the conversation part yeah. 2 the last boy scout is basically die hard 2 um a bunch of these movies domino is basically natural born killers obviously um, true true romance exists in purely movie land it does like true romance does no resemblance to reality it's just a movie movie yeah absolutely so i mean he he kind of remakes that's kind of what he does beverly hills cop 2 is a sequel he either remakes his own movie or he's you know branching off of something else i feel like almost all these titles are like that yeah crimson tide is the cane mutiny on a nuclear submarine the fan feels like they made it trying to be the next sort of uh king of comedy slash taxi driver yeah for sure totally um so days of thunder was a box office disappointment um he went into 1991 uh made a movie without Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, The Last Boy Scout. Unfortunately, instead, he worked with Joel Silver, who is a maniac and the basis for the producer character in True Romance. Um, So this was apparently a total nightmare shoot where Joel Silver had a huge ego and Bruce Willis had a huge ego and Shane Black just got paid a record um, for his script. Uh, I think it was... either three and a half or four and a half million, some absolutely absurd number. Um, and so Tony Scott really didn't have control of the last boy scout the way he had control of previous films. You know, he didn't have the relationship where Jerry Bruckheimer inherently trusted him the way, uh, with Joel Silver, Joel Silver changed a lot. He, he changed the entire third act, him and Bruce Willis changed the entire third act of Shane Black's script. Um, really? And so, Despite all of that, I will say I love The Last Boy Scout. Um, it is the first in a sort of uh, series of scripts, a series of movies that Tony Scott would make where he got like legitimately great scripts. Um, the Last Boy Scout obviously just has like uh, an obscene amount of beautiful Shane Black dialogue. Crimson Tide is an absolutely incredible script. And then True Romance is True Romance. Um so, like, there was this period of time where suddenly he was getting, like, the hottest scripts in Hollywood, um, as opposed to Beverly Hills Cop 2 or Revenge or whatever, where it's yeah. like, ah, I guess it landed on his lap. Um, and I do think that uh, even though this wasn't entirely his movie, um, you can kind of feel him uh, abandoning some of the other, some of the more overblown stylistic choices that he had in the eighties. Like, even though this is an LA noir, um, this is, you know, kind of story. He, there's not the crazy sunsets really. There's the, the police stations are smoky, but it's not all incredible, like light and shadow, high contrast streaming light through Venetian blind kind of stuff. Um, he kind of just gives the movie the space it needs for the script to work. And for Bruce Willis, uh, and Damon Wayans, who apparently hated each other, but I think they're fun together to, <laughs> to work. Mm. And and when it comes to the action scenes or like certain set pieces, like the opening sequence with Billy Blanks, like he just shoots the hell out of it. Like he when it's time for him to step in, he does his job extremely well. Uh yeah, I this is my favorite I Tony Scott movie. I love Last Boy Scout. Like I'll, yeah. I watch this like twice a year. Yeah, it's and I think it's probably mostly because of the Shane Black. Uh, script but it's 
the pacing of this thing is so great and it's so funny all the time. It's just full of one-liners um, that actually work. And it actually even is self-aware of those mm-hmm. one-liners. Like they say at the end, you got to have a one-liner before you knock somebody out or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, and I, and I love the dynamic between Bruce, Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans. It's interesting that you say they don't didn't like each other or didn't get along. Maybe, maybe that actually helped because they don't get along. This no, that's, that's true. I mean, it's Martin, you know, this is Merton Riggs. This is Die Hard 3 with Samuel L. Jackson. It's that same sort of, um, it's a buddy cop movie, but uh, they're not buddies <laughs> at all. So uh, I kind of like that, um, that they, they come from completely different mm-hmm. worlds um, socially and economically and racially. And I, that dynamic between the two of them as the thing goes on. And like you said, sort of start to learn to trust each other and respect each other is it comes out really well. I think. Yeah. I I think a big part of it is a lot of movies when they are full of one liners, they can feel kind of cheesy. Like it's like, is this what you expect? Like, like the rock by Michael Bay is one of those movies where every single thing that happens has to have another character witnessing it so they can go, uh, could he do that or something like that? And you just yeah. get like, all right, enough. I've you. Not everything has to have a little pithy thing. And it can also get irritating if the script is too self-conscious and you're like, okay, you are acting like you're better than the thing, but you're still just doing the thing. Whereas Shane Black, he is more like Tarantino where he's doing the thing, but he has a very detailed understanding of why the thing works in the first place. And so he's not just doing a parody of uh, you know, whatever Arnold Schwarzenegger says before he kills someone, he understands what is satisfying about breaking the tension in a specific point in a scene. Um, like <laughs> when he's, he goes, you hit me again, I'm going to kill you. Um, and just, and you know, he gets punched again and then immediate, it's not like a drawn out, like, Oh, and then later on he's going to immediately breaks his nose, does the whole, uh, <laughs> stabs his brain with his nose bone. Shout out to mob deep. Uh, Thing. And then everyone else is just like, oh, the tenor of the change is totally – the tenor of the seat is totally changed because they're like, oh, my god, my coworker just died. <laughs> like, what the hell? And it, and the way those scenes shift around the jokes is uh, just fantastic. And I think another big part of it is that it is so mean-spirited. <laughs> it is so nasty. Shane Black in general has a mean streak. He does not make – cuddly movies based around puns or whatever he his movies are full of people just doing really cutting insults and just just people being horrible and like the joe hallenbach the bruce willis's character is like the most scuzzy on the edge uh just like sort of uh down on his luck piece of shit private investigator in like the history of movie, like he literally wakes up with a dead squirrel on him. Like no one has ever been introduced lower than that. Um, and there is, and I think in this period of Tony Scott's movies, there is this like really nasty streak. Um, I, in his final post domino sort of stretch of his career, he got a little more optimistic and he it's his movies got a, a lot sunnier, but I feel from like last boy scout all the way until Domino, there is just this like sort of misanthropic nastiness to it that I find very appealing. <laughs> yeah. I, and even with um, like the domestic stuff in this movie, I, I criticize movies all the time that try to shoehorn the main character and then like him, tr- him or her 
trying to like juggle their family life. I can't think oh, of yeah. any off the top of my head. But there's well, a ton of like... these. They just throw that in. In in this, I don't know. I I love all the scenes with him and his wife and catching her having an affair and the the back and forth with his daughter is so good. Daniel um, Harris as. I don't yeah. like Danielle Harris generally uh, being a fan of the Halloween sequels or whatever. I don't think she's actually too good in those, but she's great in this. Yeah, super. Bra- she does exactly what she's supposed to do. You just hate her immediately. Just a little brat, and she's so good at it. And well, it's easy thing- to see them you know, butting heads constantly over that. And you get to see when they're fighting and he's throwing the ice cream around and um, Damon Wayans is in the room, like watching all this, you're kind of yeah. with him going, Oh my God, can I, this is awkward. You it's fully, be- you fully believe that if Damon Wayans wasn't in that room, some lines might be crossed. Not necessarily like he would physically abuse his kid or whatever, but he would say some really fucked up shit. If Damon Wayans <laughs> wasn't in there, like you, re- yeah. you get the vibes of like, no, there's a reason that she hates him. She's not just a petulant teenager. This guy has probably said some awful things to her. And I think the thing you were talking about, I always think of Michael Mann movies. I saw Heat recently um, and The Insider. There are these like wife characters who exist to like complain that the main character is doing the thing that the movie's about. And because that's the only purpose they serve in the script, it you the audience, even though it's supposed to make them more relatable or supposed to raise the stakes or whatever – all it does is just make the audience resent those characters because they're just yes. like, uh, excuse me, lady. He's trying to find out who killed JFK. Can you take it down a notch? <laughs> yeah, it just bogs down the movie. <laughs> but in this time. movie, in this movie, it is about telling you who this person is. We've seen how he is with clients and with his wife and everything. Like all of those scenes are about like, this is how low he has been broken down. And this is, and that makes his, you know, redemption that much greater. Now, this is a movie. Apparently, Shane Black wrote this after he went through a really bad breakup. And this is a movie that is uh, maybe not. It doesn't have the greatest attitudes towards women. This <laughs> is definitely a movie that uh, was written by a guy who would put an arm around your shoulder and be like, "Women, they just drive you fucking crazy sometimes, right?" Like, so it's it's again, there's there's a nastiness to it, but uh, the nastiness is still. It it smuggled through all of the just absolutely amazing jokes. And, I mean, you got great character actors delivering all those jokes. Like Bruce McGill and Noble Willingham and, like, those guys um, coming in and doing all the stuff. Like, they're just so for Kim Coates. What's the name of the actor who plays Milo? Uh, That's a good question. But that guy, Taylor Negron... Oh my God! There, yes, there are too many bullets in this gun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I love how he's on M. Like he's got that weird. He's like a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. The way he talks and the way he moves around, and he calls everybody Joe. Like he's not Joe Hallenbeck; it's Joseph. Yeah, and it calls everybody by their full name. Um, he's such a, and he's not big and strong. He's just a weird villain. Um, well, which he's is what got, I love. He has all of the benefits of the sort of Euro trash henchman, which is the Euro yes. trash henchman feels untethered from our reality. And therefore you look at them and you're like, not sure what they're capable of, but he also is just like extremely witty and like the way he delivers lines, he knows exactly how to make the jokes work. And therefore he's dangerous because he's super smart. And when you see him working out how they're going to get that bomb to the football 
stadium, you're like, this guy knows how to do that because he's so smart and stuff. So like, that's really like the amazing balance he has. He's not just some, you know, blonde Scandinavian guy, but he has all of the weird otherness that that blonde Scandinavian henchman would have. Yeah. And it it just works. It works so well. I love every time he's on screen. Um, But you, I mean, all these other henchmen too, like the, the landlord from the big Lebowski is the guy with the big vocabulary, (laughs) big words. And (laughs) we're getting, we're getting our asses kicked by the guy who invented Scrabble. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's just great. All these great one-liners. And also Apparently, Halle Berry before she was like anything. Yeah, yeah. I want to – she was – I'm trying to remember when Jungle Fever came out. That might be a little bit later than 1991 because that was her and Samuel – she was Samuel Jackson's girlfriend in that. Um, she, so she was. She had a she had a stretch there in the beginning of her career where she was always playing a stripper or a uh, junkie or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, but like you do look at her, and even though she's in the film very briefly, she she's just so beautiful, and you know she has such presence that you're like you remember her, and that makes her. I don't know. Again, like I don't think this is a movie that it's particularly concerned with its female characters and i do think her like she basically exists to get killed. Um, but uh, yeah, Halle Berry's good in it too. So, yeah, definitely my favorite uh, Tony Scott movie. It's so enjoyable. And like I said, the pacing, it just it, it just flows so nicely. And it's from start one to the end. The opening, isn't the opening credits like the, the Monday Night Football thing? It's a, like, yeah, I it's like a, that. it's, they don't, it's like a movie that doesn't, unlike Days of Thunder and NASCAR, this doesn't have the NFL license, I don't think. So they had to come up with some like fake one, but like. It is a very good convincing fake. I think it was like T-Bone Burnett when he was talking about Inside Lewin Davis, he was talking about like how super important it is that when you do a song that's supposed to exist in a certain context, like you have to work at it as if you're writing a real song um, because if you just sort of half-ass it because it's a parody that everyone will instantly know. And if I turned on the TV and I heard Friday night's a good night for football, I would probably believe that was actually playing. Um yeah, it feels like I remember like roughly well the time this came out when I was in high school and college when Monday Night Football that's that's what it was. There was like this big gruff country singer tonight's the night for football. Like it's a great fake. It feels real. And like like Days of Thunder there is it is critical obviously it doesn't have the NFL license but it is critical of the industry of football. It is critical about like how the system sort of crushes the individual um, obviously, as Tony Scott's career goes on, he gets more and more interested in how systems all sort of react uh, to crises and how individuals fit into um, larger uh, contexts and stuff like that. But there's you see a little bit more of it here uh, in The Last Boy Scout um, in and a way when, that I think is really cool. And when we get to the fan, it'll tackle that even more deeply. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, nineteen ninety three, True Romance. Now, we before we uh, when we were just prepping this podcast, we were like, "Oh yeah, we'll spend the most time on True Romance and Domino." I feel like we're kind of given all these movies their due, but uh, yeah, True yeah. Romance obviously stands uh, on its own in Tony Scott's oeuvre. It's it's got a massive cult following. I don't know if it was a huge hit when it came out. Um, I I feel like as far as box office goes. It wasn't until Pulp Fiction that everything Tarantino suddenly became like a hot pop cultural thing. I think you had to sort of be in the know to be excited about the guy from Reservoir Dogs and Natural Born Killers has a new movie coming out. But mm-hmm. um, 
True romance is a weird... I kind of want to hear your take on it because I, I have trouble kind of piecing together how I feel about it sometimes. Um, well, I, I really like true romance, but here's the weird thing, and this is another one of those sort of blanket statements about Tony Scott is... And this is going to sound insane, but for me, it's totally true. Aside from the movies that, I, that I've rewatched a bunch of times, like Top Gun and Last Boy Scout, aside from those and maybe one other... For some reason, Tony Scott films are forgettable for me in the way that every time I watch them, I'm it's it's new. I don't remember any of this stuff happening. <laughs> like, like I've seen True Mance like four times and every time I watch. Yeah, I remember the the Dennis Hopper scene, you know, with the Sicilian um, heritage or whatever, and a little bit of the the Floyd character. But the plot itself and all of the, the, the dialogue beats and stuff, for some reason, I always forget all of that stuff. So, um, which is okay because I, I love the movie. Every time I watch it, I go, Oh yeah, this is why I, why I love this movie. Um, it's so clearly a Tarantino script. Um, and that's probably part of why I like it so much. There's all these pop culture references. Um, but it's also, it's super flam, not flamboyant, but well, it is flamboyant, but I'm more like ostentatious. And, um, this is, this is a point I think in, in his career where it doesn't, it's really surreal. The world is surreal. Yeah. Um, like I know when he, when, uh, like when Christian Slater goes to confront the Gary Oldman character, finally, um, like what, where is that? <laughs> It's, it's just a weird it's like a club a, kind of but not re- it's like a house but there's people outside standing guard and then there's like weird neon lights all over the place t- TVs, and TVs all over the everywhere. place yeah. yeah it's like a but that's but there's couches and like these old lamps from the 30s and stuff it's just a strange surreal world that I have a little built. I have a little filing cabinet in my head as I was watching these movies for like places that only exist in Tony Scott movies. And like, that's one, I think the dinner table in revenge that had a hundred million candles on it. (laughs) So that the bottom of the frame was just fire for like the entire scene. That was one. I think the lingerie store in enemy of the state is like, you look at that and you're just like, how do they afford to pay all these models? Like, how do they, how does this business make money? It, It just doesn't make any sense. There's just, I feel like he actually got away from that um, once he started grounding his movies more and more in the real world. He kind of got away from that ostentatious production design in a way that's like a little disappointing. But yeah, um, uh, yeah, that that <laughs> that club in True Romance is crazy. Or the fact that like I think the scene where Alabama comes clean about being a call girl, like in Tarantino's script, that was just in his apartment. But he was like, no, 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 it's got to be on a big billboard. You know, they got to mm-hmm. be standing above the city. And- <laughs> yep. Uh, I think the the scene where they meet with Bronson Pinchot was originally in the zoo, but they're like, no, it's got to be on a roller coaster. Like that's the kind of stuff that Tony Scott adds to a movie that is very much Quentin Tarantino's movie because it is so dominated by his voice and his dialogue and his ticks and stuff. Um, so I I uh, I talked about I'm not a big fan of Kevin Costner. I really hate Christian Slater. Um, I kind of I feel like every time I watch Christian Slater act, I'm just watching him act. I, I've never believed any of his characters. They always feel just like a bunch of affectations. Like people talk about, oh yeah, he's just doing Jack Nicholson. But to me, like Jack Nicholson is such a natural 
presence that I almost never think of Jack Nicholson when I see Christian Slater act. Like, that's how not engaged I am with what he's doing. But this movie, I think Christian Slater works beautifully in because the whole thing only exists as a dork's fantasy. It is so naked and it's so hungrily just like, I am working at Video Archive and this is what I wish happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is so Quentin Tarantino. And and it it is a movie that the kind of the way it operates generally is it has this very movie-y fantasy, this kind of like a scene will take place and things will happen in which they only happen in the movies and it's only because the movies are beautiful and romantic. And then reality will come crushing in in a way that's like totally contrast to that and is absolutely brutal and horrific. Um, like uh, like a good example of that is uh, the scene after uh, Christian Slater, Clarence comes back from killing uh, Gary Oldman's character um, and he's got those burgers and Alabama's like, oh my God, what did you do? And for a second there, you think she's going to freak out or be mad at him or whatever. He just starts yelling at her. He just starts going, he just starts going, yo, what, what, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? And like you, it's like this borderline, almost like abusive, like verbally abusive moment. And then she's like, that's the sweetest thing anything's ever done. And then the Hans Zimmer music kicks in and they're kissing (laughs) and it's all beautiful again. And that's kind of the way the whole movie works where like Clarence walks into that crazy club and Gary Oldman just lays it out. He's just like, look, you've just been staring at me. You haven't moved. I offered you food. You're not going to sit down and eat. There's, you know, there's a naked woman on, woman on the TV behind you. You haven't even looked at it. I know that you're scared shitless. And it's that scene where, and when you're watching it for the first time, you're like, oh my God, he's so in over his head. This, he's a fucking dork who works at a comic book store. What is he thinking being there? And then the fantasy kicks in and he's like, actually, I know exactly what I'm doing. And also the fact that I know a lot about movies is part of my head games. Cause that's the Mac. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's like, what if you were the, what if you were the most capable person in all of crime because you watched a lot of movies? Like that's part of the fantasy. <laughs> um, and because of all of that, I look at Christian Slater and I go, well, of course it's all affectations. Like the whole thing is just, you know, the fact that he's this like rockabilly hipster who works at it, you know, and it's just all of Quentin Tarantino's favorite things. Like, it doesn't bother me at all, and I actually like Christian Slater quite a bit in True Romance. And he's not as good as, say, uh, Patricia Arquette, who's absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be fair, uh, it's 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 you. Most actors in this movie would find themselves not stacking up to most of the cast because every single person in this movie is an amazing actor doing an amazing job. It is so, is I think out of all of Tony Scott's movies, and this is a tall order because Tony Scott's movies are full of great actors giving great performances, everyone in this movie is someone who is a great character actor being memorable. Like Kevin Corrigan is just randomly in a scene and you're like, oh my God, that's Kevin Corrigan. But like, you know, Brad Pitt just on the couch, just like totally inert is like the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Um, you know, obviously James Gandolfini, that's a big, that's a bigger role, but like, I think, um, Chris Penn and, uh, shit, who's the, what's the name of the other, uh, the other like thug, uh, yeah, Tom other, Sizemore, Tom Sizemore, or the, the, other cop. the cops. Yeah. Yeah. Them together is like one of my favorite things I've ever seen in any. Like in any movie, just everything Tom Sizemore does, he's so delighted to be there. 
and just watching them riff off of each other makes me so happy that I like kind of wanted just like 15 more minutes of Tom Sizemore in this movie. So like, you know, the fact that Christian Slater merely gives a very good performance is, you know, it's, it's not a knock on him because this is a movie that it's only people giving incredible performances. And it, it feels kind of like an adventure movie too, because they're like, so it's these two characters and they just jump f- from not a set piece exactly, but definitely like a scene. They jump from scene to scene and in each scene, there's a new character. Mm -hmm. Oh, now this is the scene with James Gandolfini. And then we go over here and oh, now it's the scene with Brad Pitt. And then we go over here and now it's the scene with Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. And we go over here and now it's the scene with Michael Rappaport and Saul Rubinek. It's, it's this huge like adventure movie where the adventure is running into all of these characters. Yeah. Just like, in a, in a fantasy world. And I think a big part of that is that this is an early Quentin Tarantino script. So originally it was out of chronological order. Um, and when, uh, I think, I think it was Ridley Scott and Tony Scott. I think it was their production company that like bought the rights to the script and were like, Hey, we want you to direct this. And Quentin Tarantino said, no, I have another movie. I want to be my second movie. True romance is old Tarantino. I'm moving forward, you have fun directing this or whatever. And the first thing Tony Scott did once it was his job to direct it was he put it in chronological order. So I think a lot of the connective tissue that might be in a more traditional script uh, just was never there to begin with because it was always jumping around Uh, in time. And so you were only getting the big moments that uh, mean something. Um, I... (laughs) It's it's also it's also a very personal script because it is absolutely super clearly not just Quentin Tarantino's like nerd fantasy about like a beautiful girl who loves his taste in in kitsch, <laughs> um, you know, being madly in love with him uh, instantly. It is also a movie about him breaking into Hollywood. Like their trunk full of cocaine is absolutely a metaphor for. Quentin Tarantino with the Reservoir Dogs script or, you know, whatever, whatever other script he was shopping around at the time. I don't know the order of what sold first, Reservoir Dogs or Natural Born Killers or whatever, but he is this guy who is a dork who's maybe in over his head with all of these hotshot players, and he is, but he has what they all want, and so he is going to use that to leverage to access their world and sort of become the guy that he always wanted to be. And so, like, it's very hard to watch True Romance and not think of it as this, like, autobiographical journey of Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. going from a dude working at a video store, crouch surfing on his you know, friends' apartments to, like, becoming Mr. Hot Shit, King of Hollywood. Um, Interesting, that, yeah. That's a lot of fun, too. Um, what, what what do you make of the uh, the constantly talking to his inner voice, which is Elvis, with also <laughs> a big actor who played that part? I didn't even know that was Val Kilmer at first because obviously you don't they didn't have the rights to Elvis's likeness, so so Tony Scott had to get creative and it's just it's one of those great examples in film where it's you know, the restrictions made it way better because I love the way you don't see Elvis's face. Mm-hmm. Um I, I it's it's weird. It feels I mean, this is a the the story about this era of Tarantino is that like him and Roger Avery had this like massive five hundred page epic um that eventually got just split off into natural born killers and true romance. And then parts of it ended up in from dusk till dawn. So like there is a shagginess and a certain, uh, it's not necessarily the most airtight movie. And that feels like a thing that maybe would have in a longer film could have kept popping up in 
evolving, but instead it's just the two scenes. I do think it's really funny that it is specifically, and I don't think this is, so for me, and I know a lot of people have very different takes on Quentin Tarantino um, and sort of the way he is provocative slash racist or whatever in some of the movies he makes. Um, I think that Quentin Tarantino sometime around Death Proof got self-critical and all of his movies like from Death Proof on are about him actively interrogating sort of why he likes exploitation movies and what what it is about him then that draws him into them and actively wrestling with like why they're good and cathartic, but also why they're dangerous and things like that. Everything from Django Unchained to Inglorious Bastards to, uh, you know, definitely Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. These are all movies that for me are actively asking these questions. Um, I think his early stuff is just indulgent and not really critical. Um, so I do think that some of this is presented not necessarily as this is Quentin Tarantino making the audience think about toxic masculinity. This is just Tarantino indulging in it. So I do think it's funny that Elvis is like the voice of his sort of thwarted uh, insecurities as a man. One scene, it's like just the thought of, oh my God, she had a pimp. That means he fucked her. I can't believe she's you, you know, she's damaged goods or whatever the like dumb shit uh, is going through Clarence's mind that gets him so worked up that he has to kill this guy. But it's like, it's kind of a gross scene in a way because it's like, it's just, you got to just move on. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, there's a different version of this movie where maybe the pimp still comes after them. Um, but like the, the fact that that doesn't happen and instead of them being on the run from the pimp, he is like, I'm going to murder you because you know my wife in that way. And I can't exist in that world because I have these understandings of being man and, uh, you know, what it means to be a man and married to a woman or possession and all that shit. And then like later on, it's when he's in the meeting with the producer and the producer's going and he's just like, am I being a fucking pussy by like kissing his ass, talking about all these movies? And that's another funny scene because that scene doesn't really make sense in terms of a drug deal. Like what does it matter uh, whether or not you kiss his ass? You're going to sell those co- that Coke and then just move on and never see anyone in Hollywood again. But it is a question that you ask yourself if you're a screenwriter breaking in and you're like, I always said I was going to do it my way and I was going to do it this way. But now all of a sudden I find myself being sycophantic to these people. And so like, but it's still about his sort of uh, masculinity in question, like how how cool and tough am I actually? Um, so I think it is funny that Elvis only represents that in this movie, but I don't necessarily think that means that this is a movie that is critical of that. I think this is a movie that is about how cool it feels <laughs> to be yeah, a manly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and to that extent, the, the most notorious thing about this movie is the scene between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper, and it is a scene I absolutely hate. Um, and I don't really find justifiable. I do. I, I, I wanted to ask actually, before I even said that out loud, I wanted to ask you what your take on it was. I didn't want to um, put you necessarily in a defensive mode. If no. you do like that scene, but well, first of all, it, it's, um, I mean, Tarantino has been criticized a lot for using the N word so flippantly and all of it, especially his early movies. Um, and used by white people like that's yeah. something that he's been harshly criticized and a lot of people including samuel L. jackson has come to his defense on that for various reasons um so the putting aside whether i like it or not um it's it's a it's ballsy um by the character in the movie uh, dennis hopper to to spew all this stuff but it's also sure. ballsy 
by the screenwriter. Like I'm, I'm almost surprised that it wasn't cut um, because it's, it's, it's offensive, but I, that's the point is the Dennis Hopper character. He knows he's done. He knows they're going to kill him. And so what is the absolute worst possible thing I can say to this guy? What, what will insult him so much that it'll just haunt him the rest of his life. And so when he delivers that, uh, and, and Christopher Walken's reaction to it is is fucking great. So the the two actors doing the job in that scene are incredible, and I will not. I, I love the scene. I, yeah. Um. I just because of the context and and what he's trying to accomplish by saying all this stuff, and it's it's shocking. And that's what's good about it is every time I watch it, I go, Holy fuck! I can't believe that they're saying all this stuff because it's it's harsh in the, in the way that they're saying it. Yeah, I, I, so for me, I think, especially like you said in these early movies, um, he is he is doing it very. He uses the n word very flippantly. Like Reservoir Dogs has no black characters, so whether or not the characters are racist, like has no factor into it. For me, it is about that feeling that you described of I can't believe this is here. Like, wh- how does this get through? How does a producer not say, "Oh, this is going to upset some people. We better cut it." Um, I think. What Tarantino wants to do with the N-word is he wants to sort of break through moviness. It's part of the thing of things just get so brutal and nasty um, when just two seconds before they were just like super fun and bubblegum and charming. And like the scene where Patricia Arquette uh, gets beaten by James Gandolfini is like that, where it just goes so far and it's so horrific to watch. Um, And I think that is the tactic that he uses generally – but I think the way he uses it is like the purpose behind it is not to examine racism within the criminal subculture. It is to feel cool. It is, it is I'm doing a thing that I'm not supposed to be doing. And doesn't that make me this iconoclastic outsider? Um, I'm doing it specifically because I know there's something in the back of your spine as a viewer who isn't racist you're going to sort of straighten up a bit and go, ooh, oh, and then like I have you now because you're on edge. And I think that that can be irresponsible if you're not – I'm, I'm not necessarily against shocking people in general. Like I think there's a reason – I think there's often good reason to be transgressive in film. I think there's often reason to sort of push the boundaries of good taste. There's good artistic reasons why you go too far. Um, but it, I do think that those – it's not just sort of a blanket. All transgression is good enough for its own. And for me, um, it's uh, for this particular scene. It is we are identifying with Dennis Hopper. We are not. Um, it is. It is not about. Um, if Dennis Hopper was a black character, that scene would be played totally differently because that's a black character saying, "I, you know, you, you're going to kill me." And you might have more, you know, you might have more uh, cachet in this world because it's a racist world where you pass as white and I don't. But guess what? You're just like me. And whatever feelings you have about me, that is also inside of you. And that would be one thing. But when it is two white men, it is just about wielding the power of I am white and you're not white. And like that Mm -hmm. that is my last middle finger to you is that I have pure whiteness and you don't. And if, and it's, I just, 
I can't. I can't get down with it, and I, everything up to this to that moment is good, but I really don't think it's justifiable. Um, I, I okay, I kind of disagree. I, I agree a little bit. I think I think that you're right, probably in that it is, you know, Tarantino's script saying, "Look at look at what I can do. Look what I can get away with. Look at how subversive I can be." That there is probably some of that, but I think it, I think it, it does say something about the Christopher Walken character. Now you could argue that it's, it's kind of blanket saying all Italians are racist. Um, and that's maybe not okay, but, but the Christopher uh, Walken character never comes back. And not only that, there are no black characters in the movie. So the fact that there's, there's no meaningful context to know about their prejudices or racism. That's um, true. That's because true. it has no influence on the rest of the film. The film is not even remotely about that, even in the background, because the rest of the characters are white. That, scene- that, that is true. But I, it's, I guess it's interesting to watch Christopher Walken get so, be so shocked and so angry um, that it just shows him for who he is as a character. And you're right. He doesn't come back, so maybe it doesn't matter. But in the moment... Like he shoot, he kills him, and then he says something like, "I haven't killed anybody since 1982 or whatever it was." Yeah, um, that that says a lot, like about who he is as a character, as a person, and I I like that a lot, and I it almost makes me think that Dennis Hopper isn't a racist guy. It's just this is something he read, and this is the thing that will insult the Christopher Walken character forever, and I'm gonna just. And I'm going to say it and just see what his reaction is to prove my point. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I mean, that's, that's definitely how the scene is written. The scene of written, whether I think you can't say whether or not Dennis Hopper is character is racist. There's just not enough information there. If I had to guess, he's a former Detroit cop. I'm going to say he's racist, but Probably, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. But like, but whether or not Dennis Hopper is racist, isn't even necessarily the reason I find it, uh, offensive or no offensive is like the wrong term because I, I don't mind being, I don't mind having my buttons pushed. I just, I, I just want to know why. And I think it's more interesting to ask why someone is choosing to push your buttons than to blanket say no one should push buttons or whatever. And I think in this case, the re the reason why is because like, um, I, I'm really struggling to put it into words, but it's basically like yeah. it is a weapon of I am. This is how cool I am. Like this is my fluency, my fluency in black exploitation movies. I know that that's the Mac behind me on the TV. Um, is makes me cool, but there's no black character. Like I that does not translate to a respect for black people, and it is and it. It doesn't. It, it's, I'm not showing how cool I am by showing how with it I am. I'm showing it by knowing how much power I have socially as a white person, um, and being willing to go there and use it where proper society says I shouldn't use my power. And like in general, this is a movie about people committing extremely antisocial acts in general. Uh, you know, stealing cocaine and and dealing cocaine. And, you know, he just sticks a gun in Bronson Pinchot's face and accuses him of, you know, wearing a wire 
you know, just to see if that works or not. Like the whole movie is about Clarence just indulging everything he wants to do at any given moment. They only eat the biggest, greasiest, sloppiest cheeseburgers. So the whole thing <laughs> is just about being indulgent. And this is just one more way in which Tarantino is indulging, is being indulgent in a way that society tells him not to. Turns out this particular way, there's a reason that they tell you not to, and you need to and it's and you can't. It's not that you can never use that word, but like you got to know why. And I, mm-hmm. and I think we should get off the seat because it's it's obviously <laughs> highly debatable, and it fits into a much larger conversation about Tarantino's work. And this is not a Tarantino yeah. podcast, but right. um, I will say just because this scene it seems to be the first thing that people talk about when they talk about this movie. I did want to voice that uh, opposition. <laughs> well, that that part is certainly true. Like the first and thing I, I think of when I hear I, romance, that, that's I what I think. I think it's a of. good movie. Otherwise, like it's a, it's it's like this to me. It's this black mark on a movie that, in other ways, I also find sort of offensive. Like there's transphobic jokes and there's casual homophobia. Like there's all sorts of. Like at some point it's like, what's your turn off? She's like, I hate Persian people. Like even there, it's like, really? <laughs> yeah. We have to So like it's a whole movie about being sort of gross and adolescent and indulgent and um just doing whatever you want and not letting society to so and like part of that is, oh, it's super violent in a way that, you know, the violence in this movie is really both cartoonishly violent and like realistically brutally nasty violence. Yeah. Um, it has lots of different violences in lots of different ways in ways that I do respond to and I do think is meaningful. And it's like if you're going to have the scene that you have in every film noir movie of the woman getting beat up by the gang, like it's it's more responsible to show someone getting just really fucked up and showing how horrible it is um, and stuff like that. So like I don't think that you know all – all rule breaking in this movie is out of bounds or whatever. But I, I just think that particular scene, um, I do want to talk about the scene with James Gandolfini though. Cause that scene is James Gandolfini is so fucking amazing in this movie. Um, it's, yep. he's so scary. Um, and again, that, it, and it's so nasty and there, and, it, and at this point the movie has established the thing I talked about where it's like, there's this brutal, realistic, just sort of nasty, grimy, seedy thing. And then the beautiful Hollywood thing twist happens. And sometimes the other way around where it starts beautiful and then it gets nasty and seedy, but it's constantly like juggling that with you. And in this scene where he finds her um, and he's just sort of toying with her and he asks her to turn around. And then like, as she's mid turn, he just punches her in the face and he makes a little face like, oops, did I do that? And you're, it's like, it may, which makes it so much worse um, than if he was just sort of snarling and angry the whole time. Uh, there's a moment later where she, she you, it sets up the scene of this is the scene where she kills him with the Swiss Army knife. And she picks up the scene with the Swiss Army knife with the corkscrew sticking out. And you're like, okay, and then she's going to quick jab it in his neck and he'll start bleeding out and he'll, she'll yep. crawl away or whatever. And instead, she just sort of holds it up, barely able to like muster the energy to even point it at him. And you're like, oh, shit, no, this isn't – like, it's already set up the expectations of things are going to be all right. That's how this movie works. And then there's this great – like, the rug is pulled out from under you. You go, oh, no, this is going to go terribly for her. And, of course, <laughs> things do turn out all right. She ends up improvising weapons out of hairspray. Like, the way she dispatches him with the toilet seat cover and the jagged shard of glass and the shotguns. Like, it's so over the top. It, again, becomes that fantasy violence. 
But like that one moment, my heart just sunk and I go, oh God, she could die. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, that whole fight sequence just drags on and on. Like, and because she's so much smaller and like dainty compared to this big brute, I mean, it's uh, Tony Soprano, right? Like, yeah. he's so big and hulky and mean spirited and evil and just sweaty and gross. Um, she doesn't stand a chance. But, he keeps it was it's almost like a tortoise in the hair thing like he keeps giving her a chance go on hit me do it do it or whatever and um he never just kills her and so watching her just slowly come back from that and it just goes on and on and on and then it goes into another room and they have that fight and then it comes back in um but the other thing the expectation great. it's setting up is and then clarence comes in and saves the day and that's that is the legitimately great thing about that scene is like she does not need to be saved. Yep. Um, even though the whole scene sets you up because you know how these movies work. It's playing with your preconceptions about genre and stuff. It's like, and this is the, the, the ticking clock is Clarence coming back and he has the gun and he's, they're going to get into a shootout in the hotel room, but they'll become victorious and he'll save, you know, his damsel in distress. And she's like, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> which they, which Tarantino pushes again in natural born killers. Like Juliette Lewis does not need saving in that movie um she's a terror and i feel like in out there's a little bit of uh the juliet lewis character in alabama yeah for sure for sure i mean they they were the same character at some point presumably in that massive 500 page uh oh, sure script um i think i think the way it was supposed to be structured is after the drug deal goes wrong like they end up in jail and then they see that someone's made a movie about them so they break out of jail and go on a killing spree i think that was originally how the Yep, I don't yep. know. Natural Born Killers as a final film is very different from Tarantino's script, so I don't really view it as a Tarantino okay. film necessarily. But um, and yeah, she, no. uh, she she's also mentioned. The character is mentioned in Reservoir Dogs too. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, so uh, I, also, True Romance, the first Tony Scott, but far from the last Tony Scott movie that just ends with fifteen parties all pointing guns at each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, that'll come around again. <laughs> um, I I love that sequence because it's not cool, exciting John Woo gunfight. It is just like total fucking indulgent chaos. It is just close-ups of massive bloody squibs, the the room flying apart, feathers in the air. At some point, a brick of coke explodes, so everyone's <clears throat> now high on coke, and and just like close-ups of guns firing, and it is it is just like the ultimate. Um, it's not gunfight as like, and now we're going to give you a great action sequence the way James Cameron might or whatever. It is, it's not about suspense or anything like that. It is just about everything exploding in the most over the top way possible. Um, yeah. I'm a little surprised there's not like an opera score over the top of it. <laughs> um, but, and, and all of the, it's not just, you, you got a, a very, uh, a myriad of different characters in that scene too. Like people that are kind of innocent stand, bystanders you got the cops you got the gangsters you got just a business guy um you got bronson Pinchon and michael rapaport they're just kind of there um <laughs> it's it makes it a kind of a little bit more exciting scene where all these guys aren't yeah. just gunfighters it's and it and it is like why tarantino's uh why his sensibility just resonated so much with gen x because it is like the two heroes 
are the people who just want to fucking hang out and smoke weed and watch movies and everyone else <laughs> who's getting so worked up about everything and caring so much and get and like just pointing guns and being at each other's throats. Those are the people that are like, man, you fucking suck. Like, why can't we <laughs> yep. just go out to Cancun and, and watch uh, Sonny Chiba movies and listen to Phil Spector? Like, uh, that, that to me is like a very quintessential uh, 90s slacker sort of view of the world, which is just like, they can all fucking kill each other. We don't care. We're going to be off doing our own thing. Um, yeah, true. Also, True Romance uh, has the whole Badlands thing, which I don't know if that was part of the original Tarantino script or not, but... Oh, yeah. uh, it has the Hans Zimmer score emulates the music from the uh, Terrence Malick movie Badlands where Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen go on a sort of a killing spree um, in a movie that's based off of but not a retelling of the Starkweather homicides. Um, and so it has it opens with the same kind of purple, purple prose uh, kind of narration and closes on that too with the same sort of marimba score that is in that movie. And that's another movie that is, if you're thinking about romantic movies about sort of cross-country killers, that's the ultimate romantic one because that's a movie that's entirely through Sissy Spacek's point of view and she's too young to know how fucking crazy everything is and she thinks she's just going on an adventure with her boyfriend. Um, And so it's not, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde, there's trouble in paradise in their relationship and there's a lot of movies about, about these kind of cross-country killers or bank robbers or whatever that uh, are more psychologically complex, but Badlands is the one where it's just like the one that this movie is really taking inspiration from in terms of the sensibility. Absolutely, yep. Even though (laughs) Terrence Malick is not exactly the first name that comes to mind when you um, (laughs) see uh, 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 Gary Oldman's dick get shot off. Um, uh, I don't think I have anything else on yeah. True Romance. True Romance is a hell of, it's a hell of a movie, that's for sure. Um, it is, and I will also, look forward to rewatching it again. It's also like it's sort of the last bastion of old Tony Scott in terms of his style and his lighting and his camera work and stuff like that. And it's beginning where he's getting into new Tony Scott, where the editing's getting more crazy and a lot right. more Dutch angles and close-ups and stuff like that. Yeah, so the next movie, 1995's Crimson Tide, is my favorite Tony Scott movie. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily one I have to talk about a whole lot because it's it's just a really, really fucking good script with two really, really good actors. And I think Tony Scott does a good job directing, but I really think it's the script and Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman that the reason this movie is just like this masterpiece of a thriller. Um, I, I, It's, <laughs> it's just, it's... It's amazing to me that it is a Hollywood thriller where the conflict is entirely intellectual. Um, and it is just, it is not a deep, you know, it is a broadly entertaining popcorn kind of a movie, 
So I'm not, I'm not trying to say like this is a super serious intellectual interrogation into the nature of war or anything like that, but it is entirely intellectual, their, their sort of conflict that they have. And I think the fact that it makes that Gene Hackman does such a good job of seeming reasonable and seeming like not just some snarling, got to kill the Ruskies guy. Um, Especially and, toward, by the end, you yeah. know, after everything is over with and they have the court martial and all that stuff. But like, it, the, I think that final scene where they're sort of sitting down together um, and they're watching the timer and where when the met final message is going to come in and when they find out whether or not the world ended in a fucking nuclear apocalypse, like yep. they have this sort of mutual respect by then. And I think there's just a really beautiful ambiguity to Gene Hackman um, in terms of what he allows people to see him of him and what he doesn't. And I think the fact that in the script, the race angle goes unspoken, but is still there. Like I feel the people who, the the people who are loyal to Gene Hackman, um, who resent Denzel Washington stepping in and, you know, relieving him of his command because he's going to send nukes without getting a full message of confirmation, or it's not even a full, not getting a full message of confirmation. It's they didn't get a full message that may or may not be rescinding the previous order that told him to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, like, I think that there is this sort of interesting race angle to the fact that it is all sort of white men who are like, we don't trust this guy. Um, but the fact that they don't lay on it, they don't make that, the, it doesn't distract from the sort of central argument at the heart of the movie. It's super exciting. I think Tony Scott does a really good job making this, you know, no guns are fired. There's a few very brief moments of violence when they when their ship gets hit with the with the torpedo, uh, some pre, some pretty gnarly thing happens to Steve Zahn, um, uh, but like it's not a traditionally exciting movie. But it's also a movie that I've seen three times, and this last time I watched it, I was like on the edge of my seat for the entire last forty five minutes of it. Um, I just love Crimson Tide. Um, yeah, it, it's great, and you're right. It's all about the script and the performances. Like it, the war isn't with whoever it's with the Russians or whatever it's, it's sort of a war of ideals and beliefs and following orders between these two guys. And they, when they sit down and just stare each other down um, and fighting about like the horses, the lippet horses or whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, like that, there's your metaphor, right? Cause they're talking about black and white horses. Um, that's that's where the racial stuff comes in. So it's just barely there, although it's not blatantly. And only at the spoken. end, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I, I, that that sort of subtle touch is not something I associate with Hollywood or Jerry Bruckheimer, and so it is deeply appreciated. Um, now I swear Tarantino had something to do with this script, but I don't oh, yeah. see his name anywhere. But no, the, all that Star not, Trek stuff. Yeah, he did uncrediting script doctor work, and there are like three or four scenes about Star Trek, Silver Surfer, and they're talking about the best right. submarine movies. And luckily, they are all the worst parts of the movie. It's you know it's entirely possible that Tarantino also did other work that made the movie better, but it just didn't have any pop culture things, so no one ties that to him. But he for sure did the things that are terrible where Denzel Washington is like, Jack Kirby, Silver Surfer is the only Silver Surfer. It's like, <laughs> this is not what this guy is saying. Yeah, yeah, um, I agree. So, But luckily those scenes kind of exist siloed off into their own little world. And it's like this temporary distraction where you're like, wait, what? And then you're like, okay, never mind. Back to the best thriller of the 90s. Uh, <laughs> um, 
it was the first time he worked with Denzel Washington. I think it's like the perfect Denzel Washington like movie star role. It everything that makes Denzel Washington my personal favorite movie star of all time. Uh, it's it like is embodied in this character in this conflict. His his stillness and also his his the way he uses his charm to sort of deflect things, and then the way he can get really intense uh, when he gets in your face. Like everything, all of his powers are in full effect here. Um, you know, at a certain point, this is going to be Warren Beatty and Brad Pitt. <laughs> so, like, there's a version of this movie that was really not nearly as good. Um, yeah, Crimson Tide is just... And also, I love submarine movies. I think the chain of command, I think they're just inherently frightening locations, uh, submarines. I think they are... They're war movies where no one's committing, like, horrific war crimes so that's always a plus um they're they're they they have their own little hermetically sealed world with built-in drama and like built-in visual metaphors for the pressure the the crew being under pressure i love submarine movies and it's been a long time since i've seen das boot so uh maybe i'd feel differently if i rewatched that but i think this is the best submarine movie ever made oh, there's yeah i love submarine movies too and yeah it's a hunt for october you know, came out sure. right around the same time. Yeah. I don't um, think yeah, they call this movie Crimson Tide without Hunt for Red October, without their like, <laughs> please, please be reminded of Hunt for Red October. Um, yeah, I love submarine movies too. I, I love the, the everything is, um, like like you said, it's just hermetically sealed, but it's also super claustrophobic. Um, yeah. And it forces everybody to constantly be in contact with each other, which is what's, when you, when the, you know, when the sort of the mutiny breaks out and everybody starts joining teams, um, they're all jumbled up together in this tiny little boat. And that's an interesting geography for a movie like this. It's, it's, oh, it's so fascinating to think that they're having their like a uh, conversation about freeing the captain. And then you, in your head, you're like, they're probably like eight feet away from someone who has no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> right. Like it, it's just such a cool, it's just a cool geography for a, psychological warfare movie like this yeah um but yeah tony scott tends to take his two it's funny they're they're almost always male characters uh, outside of domino and a little bit of true romance it's always two male characters going face to face with each other or head head to head mm-hmm. um and this is probably the best example of that oh without a doubt in my mind um it's and it's also you're right about this is the sort of the start of where Tony Scott becomes starts to become like the Tony Scott that you think of in terms of visuals and looks like everything is, it's been a while since I revisited this, but everything's got the red lights or the blue lights. Everybody's sweaty. They're all smoking cigars on a submarine. Um, or at least Gene Hackman is like, He's it's got- still smoky and, 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 color filtered everywhere the dutch the dutch angles that were sort of first appeared in true romance really come into play sure Um, well especially because i suppose the boat is actually like at an angle but the camera stays yeah it's 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 a visual representation of sort of their precarious situation in the ocean itself so yeah for sure um and again tons of character actors in this movie uh-huh. Um, that just James show. James Gandolfini's back and he's great and Vigo Mortensen is great yeah. and uh um uh, the partner from Basic Instinct, the kid oh, right. from <laughs> a Bronx Tale, uh Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn, yeah, it's just it goes on and on. 
Um, yeah, I love I love Crimson Tide so much, but it's also just it's not necessarily when you're talking about Tony Scott's career and like what makes him a singular artist, it's not necessarily the most interesting movie to discuss. So no, but I would say outside of Top Gun, it's probably his most like accessible or commercially popular. Sure. Like everybody's other than Top Gun, this is the movie everybody's seen. Yeah, I would not show my dad a uh, true romance, but I would show my dad Crimson Tide. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, this is also the first movie he made with DP Darius Wolski, who would also shoot the fan and then would go on to shoot a bunch of Ridley Scott movies. So this, uh, he, he was definitely associated with those two brothers for a long time. And this was the first time he worked with him. Um, speaking of which the next movie is 1996 is the fan. Uh, this is again, like it, this is the the reason you want to talk about this movie is because it is Tony Scott pushing things a little further. Um, it is that he does some editing stuff here that uh, he it's that he hadn't really done since The Hunger, where um, like when Benicio del Toro gets stabbed in the in the sauna, it keeps cutting back between Robert De Niro walking away, already having done it, and Robert De Niro doing it, and like doing those kind of weird jump cuts and and playing with time and. And uh, playing with uh, the speed of the film and stuff like that, there's there's a bunch of stuff here that kind of tells me, hey, maybe Tony Scott wasn't fully invested in the story and just sort of wanted an excuse to try out some ideas he had. Yeah, that could be. I mean, this story feels kind of kind of derivative. I mean, it feels like falling down, feels like Taxi Driver. I mean, I guess because it's De Niro, there's like that little bit of Kate Fear in there too. But um, I, King of Comedy, yeah. Oh yeah, King Comedy for sure. I I don't really care for this movie that much because it's. I know this is another cliche thing to say, but there's nobody in here to root for. Like, I don't really like no. anybody. The whole story is ugly. All of the people are ugly, um, and I just. It was hard to grasp onto. I just felt gross the whole time. It kind of feels like this is the start of Wesley Snipes not trying too hard. <laughs> like I've, I, I watch a lot of late Wesley Snipes movies and feel like he's kind of just coasting on being a handsome, charming movie star and not really putting in a full performance. And this feels like that to me, where ostensibly him sort of being in between a rock and a hard place uh, with him moving to a new team and being in a slump and all that is like, supposed to get some audience sympathy but he's just not that interesting a character and he's just surrounded by assholes and he is just like a cocky millionaire so who cares totally that's totally how i feel and de niro's character is such an asshole too like the way he treats his son and he's such a he's such a um i don't know what the word is just such a slouch in his job and his he's just gets taken advantage of all the time and lets it happen and it's and he's not like pathetic in the way that Travis Bickle or uh, the character in the camp comedy is like he he is just really nasty to everyone he talks to he's very aggressive in a way that like makes him let you makes you want to spend time with him less than those other characters and he sells knives like that's his job is selling knives and so immediately you're just like yeah a, a traveling salesman of knives. It's it's uh, also apparently Tony Scott did not know anything about baseball and didn't care. So there's a lot of uh, like touches here that the producers got mad at him because he was just like 
They're like, that's not how baseball works. And he goes, oh, who cares? <laughs> well, yeah, this is what I was getting at earlier with both Top Gun and Days of Thunder. Like the climax of this movie takes place during a baseball game in a the downpouriest of downpours. <laughs> and that just doesn't happen. It looks cool. It's fun to watch these guys play baseball in a in a torrential rain uh, downpour, but yeah, that that's not how it works. They're like, are the the announcers are are they going to call the game here? And I'm like, yeah, they would have called it about an hour ago, <laughs> right? Uh, whatever. It's just one of those things, though, that I, I actually kind of like. Like Tony Scott mm-hmm. says, I don't fucking care how baseball works. I don't, yeah, I don't care that this isn't really how race cars work. It's it's adds drama to the to the scene or sure. coolness to the scene. I think I'd be way more tolerant of it. If this was like a 90 minute sort of trashy thriller, instead of being like two hours and just, just going, it just goes way too deep into Wesley Snipes career in a way that is not really relevant to the plot. Um, yeah. There's some, there's some just moments here and there that are so stupid and then make me laugh. And I'd be like, this would just be a dumb, fun, trashy movie except it's so long, like uh, De Niro singing Start Me Up. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. Or there's a moment, there, there's a, I don't know what it was in the 90s where suddenly every filmmaker lost their mind and had to include Nine Inch Nails in the most obnoxious way possible in their films. There's, uh, there's clips from Closer throughout the movie, um, and in one of, it, it kind of almost feels like Domino or just random sound effects and sound clips and stuff will just kick in. Um, that, that that feels like the first time that happens in his filmography is here, where he's just doing these expressive touches that don't have any basis in reality. And one of them is Wesley Snipes' kid uh, takes the knife that De Niro gave to him and it sort of holds it out at self-defense. And then you just hear out of nowhere, I want to fuck you like an animal. <laughs> it's like, what? What is happening? So like if, if this movie had more moments like that and was just not so bloated, I would be like, man, this is what a great time. I love it. But I just, I'm not a, a fan of the fan. Drones on and on with its grossness. Yeah. Yeah. This, but he was working on enemy of the state at the time. Enemy of the state was sort of a, pet project of his and so he did was he has said in interviews he specifically was using the fan to test out different editing and filmmaking stuff that he would go on to use in enemy of the state so the next film is 1998's enemy of the state which is one of those movies that it's a techno thriller and the subgenre of techno thrillers almost are designed to feel obsolete 90 like nine months after they come out um, you can't talk about movies like The Net <laughs> without mm-hmm. just like laughing at the way she just goes to pizza.com or whatever and orders a pizza. Like all of those <laughs> movies are always just so corny and you watch them and you're like, oh, this is no basis in reality. No one in Hollywood has ever typed on a keyboard. Um, the Enemy of the State is a movie that was made pre 9-11 and feels like a movie that was made in like 2017. Yeah, fair enough. I, I that was one of the blanket statements I was going to make about about Tony Scott's movies is that that so like I usually praise a movie for being timeless. Some you know like whether it's Twelve Angry Men or I don't know whatever it, you can just it always works it, and um, it's just timeless. It'll work now and it'll work fifty years ago and it'll work fifty years from now. It'll still resonate. Um, Tony Scott movies are not like that. No, they are ever almost every single one is stuck in the year that it was made. Um, they are in I, fact I, I time like capsules. Yeah, 
and I like that about him. I really like that about him. Now you're right. This one does seem to, besides the fact that they have flip phones and stuff, it it does seem prescient with, you know, after 9/11 with the Patriot Act and all of all of this stuff with technology really booming. Um, it it does still feel relevant and and now. So that is pretty interesting, even though they are using like flip phones. Oh yeah, there's the- there's there's little moments here and there that are still hilarious. Like they have a camera, they have a security yeah. cam footage, and they're like, "Well, what if we just rotated the thing 45 degrees?" And at some point, someone's like, "Ask Jack Black how he's doing it." And it's like, "It's a prediction." They're just yeah. like, they're just telling. They basically looked right into the camera and says, "Don't think about it too hard." <laughs> yeah, we're just doing this, but that stuff is fine. It kind of makes it more fun. Uh, I just rewatched this over the weekend. I was actually surprised how much I was into it. It's one long chase movie. Yeah. Um, and he makes a lot of chase movies, but the whole movie is a chase movie. Um, it, it It is at full adrenaline. Like, it, there's a setup. You know, there's about a half hour of setup, but after that, it's just go, 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 yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it is, and it does do... So here's the thing about Tony Scott um, and... It, it really isn't until Domino or Pot or Man on I guess even Man on Fire I, I kind of feel it's justified, but so it's not really until Domino that he is like he's always been hit with style over substance, but his style is always coming from a place of this is the reason I'm telling this story, and someone else could have told this story in a way that's less you know in your face with these choices or whatever, but I'm still telling them doing these choices to tell the story, and this is a movie that is sort of the first instance of his super crazy rapid editing um, shots of vantage points, different different computer screens, different uh, sources, you know, security cam, uh, uh, satellite imagery, all these things. And it's this, and but the, he's getting across this idea of information overload, the idea that we all have this footprint um, that this that you know we're all on the grid. Uh, we, we all uh, sort of have this trail of what we consider now like our data. You know, this is all the stuff that big data sort of tracks, you know, from our social media and web searches and things like that. Um, but at the time, he was just sort of talking about, in general, a sense of information overload. Um, and so even though it's super rapid editing, it's not like a Michael Bay movie where it's just seems totally unmotivated. You watch it and it puts you in, it makes you paranoid and it, it does a good job of being a, you know, paranoia thriller. Um, even though he would go on to use this editing in movies that did not have that as a theme. It didn't need it. Yeah. In, in this for sure, all of the style is part of the substance. Like when he's running down, it's one of the signature scenes from like the trailer and the poster and stuff. When he's running down that tunnel, and the, the tunnel is, like, tiled. It looks like bits, bits of data. Oh, yeah, um, you're right. Like, he's, like, running from the, the data. And it's all it's all lit up really weird because it's raining. And then there's red lights. And these red lights sort of reflect off the tunnel and sort of spiral around towards him. It, it looks fucking really cool. Um, but it also isn't just there to look cool and the spastic editing. It's it's there as a metaphor. Um and and you're right, information overload and the type of information that we should be scared of. I like uh, I love Regina King in this too, as the like just furious about everything happening before there, it even happens. I I think I had never seen this before. I started prepping for this podcast, and I had always assumed I'd always just sort of placed it. Oh yeah, it's the you know late '90s Jerry Bruckheimer, The Rock, Con Air, Enemy of the State. 
And there is a certain just really broad uh, kind of almost shrill characters that I associate with those movies that I now I realize like I'm, I'm actually thinking of Michael Bay movies do this um, more than necessarily all those movies. But like the specificity of their marriage and his relationship with his kid and everything is actually really sweet and kind of cute and interesting. Like that they have that little scene in the tool shed that yeah. is just that is like I'm like, I can't believe that they're taking, you know, the you know, three minutes or whatever to really make these characters work. And I, we haven't really talked about Tony Scott as an actor's director much. We talked about all the great performances in True Romance, but what we, I don't think what we sort of properly said was that there are a lot of directors who are extremely concerned with style and what the camera is doing, and you have to hit your mark, and you have to be in this light, and you have to do this, and the actors are there to realize a director's vision. And Tony Scott is someone who wants direct actors to come in with their own ideas and he is collaborative with them and he loves them. Yeah. I think Brad Pitt in true romance is a, like almost all of his dialogues improvised. Um, and there's a lot of, when you like look in the trivia and listen to commentary tracks and see interviews and stuff about the making of movies, there's always examples of, Oh yeah, that actor brought that to the set that day. And we went, we had went ahead and went with that. And he is actually very good with actors um, in a way that you don't necessarily think of his movies as being like, you know, character dramas or whatever, but he has a good touch with them and he has a way of getting the best from them. And I think Will Smith in other situations this early in his career where he's sort of stepping outside of his comfort zone as the fresh prince, as the sort of uh, cocky, hilarious fighter pilot from Independence Day or basically doing that same character, Men in Black. Like there's, you know, he's kind of outside his comfort zone in this movie as a, you know, a labor lawyer, as someone who is not really cracking jokes that often, um, who's in a movie that's, you know, it's bombastic, but it's still uh, more serious and dour and sort of uh, paranoid and fraught in tone than a lot of Will Smith movies. And Will Smith's good in it. He, he does a good job. It's not the sort of thing you associate with early Will Smith, but I think he does a good job in it. Yeah, I think Will Smith is great. And you're right, Tony Scott. I mean, there's a reason why great actors like Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington and Christopher Walken come back to work with this guy over and over again, Brad Pitt. I w- I was like, thinking about how amazing it is that Gene Hackman came back for this movie to basically reprise his character from the conversation. Yeah. And like Gene Hackman at this point in his career, he had nothing left to prove. He was six years away from never acting again. Um, he is not someone who's like, oh, it's a big budget movie. It'll be good for my career. Like he could have just told him to fuck off. And I don't think he, it was necessarily a project that he was super enthusiastic about being, but Tony Scott was there and said, yeah, you know, like, you know, I'll, you know, we'll do this together. And yeah, he that said, speaks yes, volumes speaks volumes for sure. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, I will say this is not the conversation and the conversation is a masterpiece in a way that enemy of the state is not. And so there are moments here and there where it's doing very explicit homages to the conversation that I think are like, ah, you should have just done your own thing. I like the the scene in the in the sort of courtyard where they're uh, where he's they're spying on him from all the different mics and stuff like that, um, and a couple other references to the conversation. Those always kind of took me out of it a bit, and I was just like, uh, "This isn't you. Don't remind me of a better movie. Just do the movie that you're making." Yeah, fair enough. But I, I mean, it had to be in the obviously in the back of his mind is that this yeah. is sort of a 
it's not a sequel exactly, but let's let's definitely tip our hat to the yeah. conversation a few times. Um, and and as prescient as this is, I will say this is part of '90s culture was conspiracy theories, um, was a distrust of government. Obviously, the culture of America changed wildly after 9/11, and sort of a, a reemergence of conservatism and patriotism and um, sort of unquestioning belief in the uh, infallibility of, of our government and everything sort of emerged in a big way that we've never recovered from. But in the 90s, uh, even though there are specific ways this story is told that make you very, I mean, it's like he's literally being spied on by the NSA who have, you know, like that make you think of Edward Snowden or whatever. This is also of its time. Um, in the next movie that Ridley Scott would make, or Tony Scott would make, uh, Spy Game, uh, one of the characters smokes Morley cigarettes, which is the cigarettes that the cigarette smoking man smokes in X-Files. So he's clearly an X-Files fan. And mm-hmm. you look at Enemy of the State, which came out the same year as the X-Files movie, and you go, okay, this is part of a larger cultural conversation as well. And it's the thing you were talking about in terms of uh, it's instantly dated. Right. Uh, it's cool. It's a cool movie. It's it. I think of a lot of those bombastic uh jerry bruckheimer productions i think enemy of the state holds up better than most yeah um, and i hate to keep harping on it but again with the character actors like too many crickets <laughs> J- jack black and gabriel byrne and jason lee and scott Kahn and jake Busey and barry pepper all, all these people are just and seth green um i think I, this I, is i love I, seeing all these people pop up I looked at I looked at Jerry Bruckheimer's productions post this, and I feel like maybe this was the high water mark of like the most that he was willing to spend on a cast because it's, <laughs> yeah. he really tones it back. And by the time you get to the Pirates movies, it's like okay, if it's a notable character, we'll get someone you recognize. Otherwise, we're just going to get a solid British actor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this I think this really is the the most overblown, and I don't think this movie was the kind of success that like The Rock was. Um, I don't think it, it wasn't a bomb by any means, but I don't think it necessarily, uh, was the kind of blockbuster they were hoping it to be. And I do wonder if he looked at how much he spent on getting Tom Sizemore to sit down in two scenes and be like, uh, maybe we could be working smarter here. Yeah, that's probably true. Although like a lot of these guys were nobody at the time. I guess that's, I guess that's true. Was Jack Black anything? No, Jack Black was not anything, uh, well, let's see. High Fidelity I mean, Jason was 97. And... Oh, okay. Well, so he was somebody, I guess. But I, I, yeah. I think, yeah, Jason Lee was someone who was notable, uh, if not a huge star. Um, yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, but uh, it, it, is, it is funny just how unbelievably stacked the cast is. Uh, I also need to bring up, this is the first time he worked with composer Harry Gregson Williams, who would score all of the rest of his films. Um, I think Harry Gregson Williams is not one of film, one of cinema's great composers, but he does work with Tony Scott really well in that he makes music that is just all about momentum and connecting one scene to the next. Um, there's not a lot of memorable motifs or themes or anything in a lot of his work, at least not that I noticed while I was watching these movies, but like the that, like you said, like this is a movie that just goes and goes and goes, and part of that is the score just pushing through everything all the time. Um, it was also the first time that Tony Scott worked with uh, DP Dan Mendel, who would go on to shoot Spy Game and Domino. Um, okay. 2001 Spy Game is an interesting movie. 
uh, in the career of Tony Scott because it you could look at it and in in one way it could have been Tony Scott's it could have been his exit uh, that he got off of the train he was on and started making movies that were like for adults and were more prestigious and you know more like his brother you know <laughs> if, if if he's the one who who critics always hated like you know Tony Scott movies always got panned almost. Uh, you know, his brother was the one who made Alien and Thelma and Louise and Blade Runner and all these things. So, like, there is an opportunity with Spy Game. You look at it and you'd be like, it's not quite a John Le Carre novel. It's not quite Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. But it's also not quite James Bond. It's a, it's more in the real world and it's more interested in the uh, sort of bureaucracy of the CIA um, in a way that you go, this could have been, like... This is my adult movie for adults, and I'm showing that I'm a serious filmmaker. But thankfully, Tony Scott never fell for any of that bullshit. And instead, he just doubles down on his weird on-screen graphics and uh, crazy frenetic camera and like a, an intimate conversation between Robert Redford and Brad Pitt shot with 15 helicopters on a rooftop. And <laughs> um, yeah, he certainly this. I mean, he certainly has a lot of cameras rolling all the time. Yeah, I think uh, I really am thankful that Tony Scott never lapsed into good taste uh, outside of his early work before he sort of figured out what his thing was. Um, because that's always for me, most filmmakers, once they start getting serious and trying to win Oscars or whatever, that's when their shit gets really boring. Like, yeah. I don't think Adam McKay ever recovered. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, this movie. I I seem to remember that it, it's it takes a while for for it to get going. I mean, there's that opening, isn't there? The whole opening scene is in that, that I think prison, it, and as, it's like an escape. There's there's this, there's this, yeah there's a stretch after like the first twenty minutes where you see the origin of Robert Redford and Brad Pitt's relationship that is just sort of introducing the audiences to the fundamentals of spycraft and like how does the CIA find new recruits and train them and how do you turn someone from just an average soldier into the most manipulative human being <laughs> that you've ever met. Um, and so the, the pace flags a little bit during that time, but the thing, the whole thing of the movie is there is this ticking clock that Brad Pitt is stuck in a Chinese prison and the CIA is more than happy to let him rot there because he wasn't supposed to be there to begin with. But Robert Redford, having been his mentor and having chastised him earlier uh, in their careers for being too sentimental and getting attached and not looking at people as disposable um, realizes that he can't do the same with Brad Pitt and he has to get him out. So it actually becomes like this con game where he is, it's on his last day of work. It's again, it's this really bombastic scenario where it's literally his last day on the job. He has 24 hours to free someone right, in China. Right, right, right. Um, and he does it by just being, it's almost like the sting or something where he's just like this con artist who is, you know, manipulating all the people around him uh, and, you know, leaking stuff to the press so that other options they have get closed and stuff like that. It's a, it's a pretty fast paced movie. Um, and it's pretty fun, but it isn't necessarily as over the top and crazy as some of the other stuff. And there's parts of it that are a little bit flavorless and a little bit like, okay, yeah, it's a spy movie. It's doing the spy movie thing. But uh, also Brad Pitt, uh, I, I feel like Brad Pitt's one of those guys who in, used correctly, like in Thelma and Louise or True Romance, could be great. But he wasn't really a great actor until he got older and got a little more mileage on him. And I don't think he's very good in Spy Game. Um, 
Yeah, it's kind of a warm up, I think, yeah. for yeah, later in life for sure. Um Yeah, I I seem to remember being pretty on board with most of the like especially you know, the last 45 minutes, like you said, where he's walking around sending text messages and speaking in code and operation dinner out. Yeah. 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 Like, like all that stuff. It's just classic spy stuff, which is kind of nice to see in a Tony Scott movie. It's just a little bit more, it, it, he feels a little bit more restrained, a little bit more on a leash. Um, Cause it's certainly not like domino or, or, or deja vu or man on fire in terms of spy spastic no but, but. They, he does do like freeze frames where he'll have like 23 hours left and like the way he introduces those graphics or even like subtitles when people are in foreign countries the subtitles are very stylized in a way that i think he would do in domino and like john wick sort of notably does with the russian gangsters in those movies like so he is still kind of testing stuff out and experimenting and being playful um he's just not he just hasn't really abandoned reality in the way that man on fire is a total abandonment of reality. Right. Um, I think it's really all I have to say about spy game. We, we should bring up before we get to man on fire in 2004, we should bring up beat the devil from 2002. Um, BMW had this whole series of commercials they did where they got these really cool, hip, notable filmmakers and they gave them sort of carte blanche to make a short film. They said, here you have this much money you need to feature this BMW and Clive Owen is the driver and that's it. You know, go make the movie you want to make. And so they had this whole series of shorts uh, where Clive Owens is the driver of a BMW and Tony Scott's is the, it is the moment. It's the aha moment where you, you might've, if you, if you have not seen beat the devil, you might've looked at man on fire or domino and be like, where the fuck did this come from? This is so aggressive. And the answer is beat the devil. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is uh, about uh, James Brown, uh, who has negotiated a deal with the devil on the crossroads to become a famous rock star, uh, you know, the, the godfather of soul. He is now getting old, and he wants to renegotiate his deal. Gary Oldman plays the devil, not unlike he plays the pimp in True Romance. Yep. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's just a bunch of ticks, and just it's goofy. There's no real through line. It is just screaming and then just like crazy jump cuts to different takes of things. And it is, it is fully all of the obnoxiousness of Domino um, fully formed in this BMW short. And I do like that Tony Scott is this guy who is just like, I'm going to use your, I'm going to get paid to make this movie. But what I'm actually doing is prepping for the movie I want to make. Uh, Cause he did that with the fan when he was testing out stuff for enemy of the state. And I feel like he's doing that here uh, for man on fire and Domino Domino, by the way, a movie that he started working on in the mid nineties um, because he befriended the real life Domino Harvey. So all during this time he is trying to get Domino made. Um, and so that is on his mind uh, e even as early as 2002. Well, you're a hundred percent right that this is like the turning point of where he became Tony Scott that everybody thinks of, um, in terms of visuals, uh, this commercial leading into man on fire. Who are the other directors that Wong Kar Wai did one? Was it mm -hmm. Michael Mann did the other one? I believe it. I didn't, I never looked up a full list, but I, I did a little more research this morning and I, I, I heard about the premise and I'm like, I kind of want to see the rest of these. They're pretty fun. They're yeah. exactly what you said. They're just a lark, but they're, they're fun. And I, it's always good to see Clive Owen. 
<clears throat> and they're just all on YouTube. All you got to do is search yeah. BMW, Clive Owen, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, that that visual style, how those crazy jump cuts and like the flickering and the hand cranked film and stuff that really um, takes it gives you Man on Fire. Which I have to apologize in advance. I have I didn't rewatch Man on Fire for this, mm-hmm. unfortunately, um, and I. I barely remember it at all. I mean, I know, I basically know the gist of the story, but I don't remember much of the details. So I'll let you lead that one. Okay. Man on fire is fucking insane. <laughs> like I watched like, a couple of clips today of a uh-huh. guy getting his fingers. Um, it is off. so, I was, I talked about the sort of misanthropic nasty streak of Tony Scott earlier. Like this movie is so gross and just so mean spirited in a way that, so, like, this is also the first feature film that he made pre-9-11. Um, and, I mean, I should say post-9-11. Oh, yep. um, and this is a movie about a guy who is a professional killer. He, you know, he worked black ops. And, like, they name all the different places Denzel Washington has been. And it's basically everywhere that America has invaded and fucked with their elections. <laughs> like, like, it's just basically a history of American imperialism is Denzel Washington's character. And here he goes into another foreign country and just brutalizes everybody in the most obscene ways you can imagine, including a rectal bomb. Um <laughs> In order to save a, a white girl, which is the other funny thing is he goes to Mexico City to become a bodyguard, but like the little girl, he is Dakota Fanning. It's like they couldn't have a Mexican child be the fucking <laughs> a girl who gets kidnapped because – Her name the, is Lupita Ramos? Yeah. <laughs> because okay. Mark Anthony plays her dad, but her mom is like the whitest blonde lady ever. So like the – the uh, optics of the whole thing is this is a super gross movie that is a very much for me a post 9-11 Bush era movie about America going into the dangerous parts of the world and setting things right. And if they have to do it through brutal, uh, questionable means, then that is just the price it takes to for redemption. And that's the craziest thing about this movie is that. Uh, it starts off Denzel Washington is this like just hopeless alcoholic, like on his job interview, someone's like, you're, you know, your, your resume is extremely impressive. Why, why are you so cheap? And he just tells the person who's in it, he goes, I'm a drunk. <laughs> like he is just like part of his reality is just like, I am going to do my job. And then as soon as I'm not doing my job, I'm going to go into my room and I'm going to drink because I have seen the, the horrors of the world. And this little girl, Dakota Fanning, sort of redeems him and sort of cracks through. And the thing about this movie that's so infuriating is, again, this is like Top Gun where it's like I look at this and I'm like, this is just fucking evil. I, like, I really don't like what this movie is doing. But Denzel Washington, and this is not common in his action movies, uh, of which I think this is like sort of the entry point to where he would kind of stop doing dramatic roles and start doing just straight up action movies. Mm-hmm. Um, He's really giving a performance in this. He's very good. Him and Dakota Fanning together have amazing chemistry. She is also incredible. That was like part of the talk about this movie was that like Dakota Fanning, this is pre, you know, War of the Worlds. This is post I Am Sam. This is, she was like the hottest child actor that had come around in quite some time. And unlike a lot of child actors who sort of have one great moment and then just become drug addicts or whatever, like not, not nothing against the child actors of the world. Like it's a fucking brutal life, but 
Um, Dakota Fanning was the real deal, and she's just an amazing actor. I haven't really seen any of her stuff she's done as, as an adult, but like as a child in these movies, Man on Fire and War of the Worlds and I Am Sam and all that, like she's absolutely incredible. And so you watch it and you act, despite yourself, despite it being so ridiculous, despite it being so violent, like this is literally a movie where he's like, oh, they kidnapped my kid. I'm going to have to go buy a rocket launcher. <laughs> like this is like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from the 80s. Like this is basically Commando. It's so fucking crazy. Um, Sounds like Taken, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is absolutely the blueprint for Liam Neeson's action career, um, except that Liam Neeson never puts in a performance this good. Uh, you you kind of buy it anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, the thing that makes this movie so absolutely out of control is that Tony Scott is going full-blown expressionist. He's going experimental. There's sections where a scene ends and it cuts to black, and then you get these, like, short like 15 second like experimental montages where you hear clips from previously in the movie and you see flashes but they're all desaturated or they'll be like ghosted the way you see in domino where there's like five images sort of stacked on top of each other and it's like it's like his nightmares basically it's a representation of him processing everything that has been happening to him and that's the thing about this movie is despite the fact that it is so crazy and over the top and the hand cranked stuff it's not like uh, Zack Snyder. If you haven't seen this movie, if you haven't seen what we're talking about in terms of hand-cranked, like Zack Snyder does sort of digital camera speed ramping where it's a very smooth switch to slow motion. And the whole thing is that it's like holding on an iconic moment and an iconic shot. And it's like building this thing up to be more epic. This is about making things feel nasty and dirty and the light is flashing and the colors are all washed out and gross-looking um, because the camera speed isn't consistent, so the exposure rate on the individual frames of film isn't consistent, so everything's kind of flickery and looks gross and broken. It looks like they fucked up. Like, if a normal movie got this footage back from the lab, they'd be like, what the fuck? We gotta re- reprocess this, but this is actually what Tony Scott was going for. And the whole thing just feels... It, it, it matches, obviously, just how overwhelmingly brutal and nasty the movie is. But it also is directly tied into this character, which is this is a guy who is an alcoholic who has hypervigilance because he has lived in the high-impact combat zones for most of his adult life. And therefore, he has to drink to numb it. And now that he stopped drinking and he has a mission again, he's back in like the kidnapping sequences is absolutely brilliant piece of editing where he's just seeing bits and flashes here and there where it's like, ah, you, they're not police. They're dressed like police, but they're not police. And I'm already clocked them. But I, this person's coming over here and I'm reaching for my gun. But while I'm reaching for my gun, this car pulls up and like, he sees the scene in a complete manner. And the way it's done is through crazy editing and through, uh, you know, the speed speeding up and slowing down and stuff like that. But it is about getting inside this guy's head. It is about this is what it feels like to be this character. And despite it being so over the top, Tony Scott is not ungrounded. Um, and that is sort of the thing I find really remarkable about this movie. It is experimental in a way Hollywood films basically never are. Certainly Hollywood films that are this successful never are. Man on Fire was a big hit. Um, and I, you know, I got to respect anyone who can smuggle uh set, like pushing the boundaries of film aesthetics into movies that make a ton of fucking money um cuz it's cuz that's not what Hollywood is designed to prevent that from happening um and 
it is, again, it is a nasty movie. I think it's a racist movie. It's depiction of Mexico as just sort of a general hellhole. Though I will say the one thing they don't do, which I think even by 2004 was a common thing and is certainly still a common thing, is shithole color timing. Are you familiar with this, Andrew? No. Okay, so we talked about uh, Steven Soderbergh, we, uh, Traffic. Everything's um, yellow. On an early thing. So that was Steven Soderbergh making a conscious visual choice to keep all the different places in traffic sort of separated from each other. But yep. it eventually just became a very common tactic whenever you made a movie that's set in the Middle East or in Latin America, you would color tint everything so that the the sky looked like the wrong color and none of the foliage was green. And it was basically like, this looks like a fucking hellhole. It looks like, looks like shit. And it was this generally dehumanizing tactic of this is a place where only bad things happen. And therefore when the American military or whoever goes to this place and does bad things, it's not seen as, as offensive as it would be if we actually depicted Iran the way it looks, which is there's actually a lot of nice trees and the sky is fucking blue or whatever. And this movie, there's a lot of nice trees and the sky is blue. But it's still, I would say, if I was a Mexican living in Mexico City and I saw this movie, I'd be like, mm, I don't know about that one. I don't know how I feel about this. And they even had to put a little thing right before the end credits where it's like, thank you so much to the beautiful and amazing city of Mexico City. <laughs> it's almost like a, please don't send your letters, we know. <laughs> so, so this is another movie that I look at and I'm like, I don't know how if I approve of this, but I can't say I didn't enjoy the hell out of it. Uh, you know, it's not my preferred format of action. I like really clean. I like the James Cameron, you know, John Woo stuff. I like, you know, if I, I like lines of sight. I like John Wick. I like super sophisticated, suspenseful, you know, geography based gunfights and stuff like that. I'm not necessarily someone who wants to be bludgeoned with style, but of all the people who do the fast editing, hyperkinetic action style, Tony Scott justifies it the best and is generally the best at organizing it. And I think Man on Fire is a really cool movie. Yeah, I, I feel bad for not getting to it for this, but I will watch it soon because, yeah, I mean, and that leads right into Domino. Yes, from 2005, Domino, a totally fucking unhinged. Now, I want to ask, so I, I listened to a podcast this today that where they were reviewing Domino because I was curious how most people view it. And I think most people just view it as an extremely irritating movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this one podcast mentioned this theory about the movie that sort of colors how you view it. And I didn't view this, I've never viewed this movie this way. So I wanted to know if this is your take. Is Domino Harvey tripping on mescaline in the interrogation room and therefore all of her memories are influenced by the mescaline in the tea that she was, or the coffee that was spiked earlier in the film? Oh, I don't know. I never thought of that. Uh, they do, yeah, they do mention that it was in her blood. Set. So her retelling the story is just this. That's like the reason why everything's fucked up and like just lots of tangents and like a lot of it's not true and just and total flights of fancy is because the whole context for the movie we're watching is someone who is high. Yeah, I forgot that moment. They did mention that you still have a ton of mescaline in your bloodstream. Like, so the whole movie exists as a feverish drug haze. I mean, what? now I feel like I'm having a conversation with Kurt Halfyard. He, <laughs> he thinks all movies are just in somebody's head. Um, 
I will say this movie exists as a feverish drug haze, whether or not that's true. Like, that's clearly what this movie is. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, that's an interesting... T- I've never... That never occurred to me. And it's certainly... It's certainly possible because the whole thing is just insane. All of it. Like, it's it's so comic booky and cartoony um, and ridiculous. And it jumps all over the place. Like, the way it jumps all over the place from different characters to the this Jerry Springer show to all of the, all of the reality TV stuff that's intertwined in there. I could see that as just being her crazy mindset going all over the place and not really making it a whole lot of sense. Um, but it is a hell of a fever dream if, if that's the case. So I, this is a very divisive film. I feel like Tony Scott as an auteur, as someone I, I there's a terrible, terrible term that was, coined a couple years ago or whatever that I do not approve of, but nonetheless I will bring up here, which is vulgar auteurs, um, which is which is the people who are not Tarkovsky and yet their films have a single voice and therefore we have to segue, you know, we have to segment them somewhere else or whatever. I feel like Tony Scott's star has turned to the point where, especially since his suicide, um, he sort of has been reconsidered and people are more open to Tony Scott as an artist than they were at the time. Because towards the end of his career, taking the Pelham 123, Unstoppable, Tony Scott was like a joke where people were just like, oh, yeah, it's another train movie. Like, yeah. he, he was not taken seriously as an artist and his body of work was not really considered as such. I don't think Domino itself has really gotten that reputation boost, though. I think it's still an extremely divisive movie. Uh, how do you feel about Domino? I. I like Domino quite a bit. I didn't like it this recent viewing as much as I thought I did, but I still am on the side of fandom. Whereas you're right. I mean, people either really like this movie or really hate it. Oh yeah. Um, there's not really any three stars. It's either one or four and a half, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, I really like it. I'm, I'm also a big fan of, it's not quite as good, but I'm also a fan of natural born killers. Um, and it definitely sort of has that, that I was, vibe to it. I was it's, literally, I had a list of like hyperkinetic movies I was going to ask you about. I was like, yeah, what about now? You know, 128 I mean, hours. Because it's like, it's this, you know, super hyperkinetic and the, the messaging in it is so just hitting you over the head with a hammer constantly. Um, you know, in this, it's just about, well, I, I you know, in natural born killers, it's all TV. TV is bad. Mm-hmm. This is it. Uh, the news is what fuels all this hatred and stuff. And here it's pretty much the same thing, except it's reality TV. That is the, the garbage for your brain. Um, and it also just, it moves like natural born killers and has a similar plot line. Um, so I actually like it. And here's another case of where this thing is absolutely stuck in the year that it was made. Oh my God. Um, probably more than any other of his films. And, uh, I like that. That's what I, I love going back to 2005. And when you bring in these like B list, C list celebrity hostages in Ian Zeering and Brian Austin green, um, <laughs> as themselves and the way they just are punishing themselves and ridiculing themselves through the whole thing. Like all of that stuff is just excess that I love. Um, it, it, it never pulls punches. It just keeps going with the more ridiculous, more ridiculous, 
um, it's hard to look at. I mean, it probably yes. throws some people into seizures. It is actively ugly, and yeah, there would definitely if you if you're epileptic, this is maybe a movie that you should <laughs> yeah. not watch. So, but I love all that stuff. Now, again, I watched it. This is the first time I've watched it in a few years, and I, I didn't like it quite as much as I did. I, it starts to get it starts to lose steam. I think. Yeah. And the like, it's not just not very interesting in the last half hour, but everything leading up to that is just so bonkers and interesting. And the way this is full blown chemical, weird chemical processing in the, in the film stock and different types of film stock and different speeds. It's just like man on fire, but even like times 10. It was shot with like five different cameras, a mix of digital and film cameras, which not a lot of digital, not a lot of mainstream Hollywood movies had any digital filmmaking in 2005. Right. Um, there, so here's the thing about this movie is that it, one, it is, we sort of just, we decided ahead of time we were going to talk about true romance and Domino mostly. And Domino is directly a reference to true romance. They, these two movies are linked. And yes. where True Romance is Quentin Tarantino's most personal film, this is him sort of inserting himself and telling his story um, and depicting his world. I think this is Tony Scott's most personal film. I mean, it's it's telling – Tony Scott's not a guy who originates most of his projects. Most of his projects, he is a director for hire, and he gets paid very handsomely to make a good version of a hot Hollywood script. Um, but this is a something that he himself he paid five hundred thousand dollars for the life rights of Domino Harvey. He was friends with her. He was doing research for years and years. At some point, Sharon Stone was going to be Domino. It, like to give you an an, in, uh, an idea of like how long this was a project. You know, she was attached to it at some point. Um, and and so this is a movie again. Even though this movie, I think more than any of his other ones, is untethered from cause and effect, it is it, it is shock and style for the sake of shock and style. It does have a central character that I think Tony Scott relates deeply to in Domino, in that Domino is a uh, adrenaline junkie, and she has discovered a way that she can, as a rich upper class, you know, beautiful white lady. Like she has discovered a way that she can just sort of slum it. Like it is the most committed uh, and over the top version of slumming it that has ever existed. You know the you know when uh, when when rich people you know vacation and poor you know and go to poor place poor countries and stuff like that and just sort of gawk at everything. Like Domino is a character who has discovered how to make her entire life about just cheap thrills and hanging out with lower class people and. And it is, and and like she is just this thrill junkie. Like she is an exhibitionist. Like she really gets off on going into that bounty hunter class, like dressed and knowing that it's just going to be full of burly men who are gawking at her. And she loves being mm-hmm. a distraction. Like the the moment it's I when I was the moment I was most fearing returning to rewatching it was the lap dance scene because to me I'm like oh god it's just some TNA for the sake of TNA it's so stupid and unmotivated but you watch it and you're like no this is someone who is she is getting off on doing a striptease and she's just sort of like she's like sometimes a girl's got to get naughty it's like you asshole you know what you're doing you're getting like you're more excited about having like oh no looks like I have to you know have all these gang bangers goggle at my body like she 
she is like that's part of the thrill for this character and whether or not that is the actual domino harvey or that you know i this movie is so far removed from reality that i think we should when we say domino we should talk of we should just assume that we are only talking about the movie character and not the, the character person. right and it's interesting the, the the link to true romance because you mentioned true romance is about a couple of people trying to break into hollywood yeah this is a character trying to break out basically <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true that's a great point i i didn't uh, i didn't make that connection where she's like as soon as the guys from 90210 shows up she's like fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but like for me when I'm watching Tony Scott's movies and I'm hearing stories about Tony Scott as a filmmaker and Tony Scott, when he's not filmmaking, he's, you know, he's driving super fast sports cars and driving race cars and he's mountain climbing and stuff. Tony Scott is a guy who lives vicariously through the movies he makes. Like he doesn't get to be a fighter pilot, but he got to make Top Gun, you know, like he Mm -hmm. isn't, he isn't, you know, he's never been on the CIA mission, but he did get to make spy game. You know, he did get to blow up a building in enemy of the state. He seems you know, he seems like a guy who he loves being there. You know, Unstoppable came out in 2010. By then, you could do pretty much everything you needed to do with a movie like that with CGI. But instead, he, that is a movie that was made. The point was, we're going to be there physically. We're going to be there on the train. Chris Pine is actually going to be walking out onto the train as it's speeding. And he's going to be doing most of his own stunts. We're going to have shots of Denzel Washington running along the top of the train as it's actually moving. And like, he is a guy who lives vicariously through his movies. And I think Domino is Tony in a way like Domino is this person who is just like really, uh, just like saturating herself in just scuzzy, um, just like white trash, lower class, like in a, in a gross kind of way, this is another movie that you watch it and you're just like, this is so mean spirited and vicious and, mean and and gross but uh that's you know that's who the character is you i don't think you i don't think you dedicate yourself to finding poor like sending poor people to jail (laughs) unless you probably uh don't think too highly of the human race so like bounty hunters are kind of scum in general oh and those characters exude that yeah so like like mickey rourke and carlo edgar ramirez are that way but they also don't really i mean they portray the the upper class is pretty hideous too. Oh yeah, like the fucking frat or sorority that she joins, um, and the frat the frat house they go into later and gross. The, the oh TV, yeah, TV producer yeah. like this. All is- of that stuff. Her mother around the pool and just like everything. You sort of they make it a good point of how, why she wanted to get away from that. This is just not her personality. It's all such pretentious plastic bullshit. I want to yeah. live. I want to have a girl have a little fun, I think she says. Yeah, and specifically, like, the thing that isn't bullshit is just indulging every fucking crazy idea that ever came to your head. Just doing all of these drugs and and just, like, walking headfirst guns out into incredibly hostile situations. Like, she's specifically just the same way that, you know, True Romance is a movie about just indulging uh, all of your basest, most adolescent fantasies. Like, this is a movie about her just... (laughs) <laughs> like the only thing that's real is the fucking high I get when I think I'm about to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I, so like for a long, good long while, I want to say for like the first 45 minutes or so, that's what this movie is about. And it rocks. It's great. I love Delroy Lindo's character. Uh, I love the, the sort of weird detail about the DMV. Um, I, I, there's just the world of it is really good. 
and then the whole heist thing comes in, and it just feels like a distraction from what the movie's actually about. Um, and I don't actually like the sort of the the heist uh, kind of has an un- unfortunate. It's sort of an un- exists in an unfortunate uh, middle ground between being not twisty and turny enough, but being too convoluted to follow easily. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's where the movie starts to kind of fall apart. And you've got that huge action sequence at the end, which is basically just the end of true romance again, but you know, crazier. Yeah. Usually. And you, you said, I'm surprised opera didn't start playing during the shootout. Opera plays during the explosion <laughs> of this. Yep. S- specifically, it is the opera that plays during the opening of Casino when Robert De Niro's car explodes. So, like, ah. we, we are existing in a self referential world where Tony Scott's referencing himself. There's a moment where it's like, where'd you learn to shoot like that? And she goes, haven't you ever heard of the Beverly Hills Gun Club? Which is where a lot of Beverly Hills Cop Part 2 takes place in. That's like where Bridget Nielsen works is the Beverly Hills Gun Club. So like uh, mm-hmm. even a movie that Tony Scott had no interest in gets a little gets a little reference in Domino. It's a very um self-referential movie. Again, it's a stacked cast. Uh Christopher Walken is utterly hilarious <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely car- uh, Christopher Walken caricature Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and I, I forgot to mention it back with Enemy of the State, too, because we've mentioned race a lot through this podcast. Sure. I forgot all of the racial elements in Enemy of the State. Um, like, they they just blatantly talk about um, different slurs for yeah. people. And everybody's, you got the Italians, and they hate the blacks, and blah, blah, blah. And in, in this movie, race is brought up kind of strangely and needlessly other than it's just a kind of a funny scene the jerry springer the chinegro <laughs> it's japa japanegro or whatever she uh, she has this whole flow chart of different races and what their that is, that is, what their term is i that's probably the, the nadir of this film and it's and it's but again i think this is just such a nasty movie that that is the sense of humor and that's kind of like for me this is the most tony scott tony scott is not someone who needs to always inject all of those things into every like the way that Oliver Stone can't help but make the most Oliver Stone ass movies every single time. <laughs> yeah. Like Tony Scott is able of reeling it in, but like when you watch Domino, what I see is the unfiltered thing that is kind of bubbling under the surface in a lot of his other movies. And to me, that's where I say, and obviously I didn't know the man, and you know, uh, this is all, you know, pre, you know, this is this is all. Uh, me just supposing, but like I point to that and I go, okay, this is Tony Scott for real. This is where he is just totally unbridled and all of the good and all of the bad that comes with it. Again, this is a movie that nothing looks like this now. Nothing has ever, I want to say this is a movie that a lot of direct to video movies imitate, but because they're cheap, like it just looks like trash. It's I've seen this kind of style when I, I worked at Blockbuster from like 2005 to 2007, and I feel like this style of movie became popular on direct-to-video stuff, but it just doesn't have Tony Scott's taste, and it doesn't have his budget, and it doesn't have uh, any of the humor, or so it it was just it would just be like someone with an avid just hitting the edit button too many times or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like other than that, no, this movie kind of stands alone. Nothing really looks like it. Uh, though I think another movie, it maybe also came out in two thousand five. You remember? Do you remember the Paul Walker movie, Running Scared? Yes. 
for some reason, yeah. that was also this. Um, that also had a lot of hand crank stuff. The opening gunfight in Running Scared, uh, where they killed the dirty cop, is basically from True Romance, and uh, it looks like this. And for Running Scared is a movie I think time has forgot, but I will never forget because I saw that and Domino at the young age of 16 or whatever. And I was just like, Oh, this is what movies are going to be like from now on. And it's like, no, this is, this is way too aggressive and gross and off putting to ever become a mainstream thing. But, uh, um, I remember liking running scared. Actually, I, Me too. It's a movie I'm afraid to return to, but I, yeah. then again, I was afraid to return to Domino and ended up liking this movie quite a bit. Yeah. It, actually Domino, we should say is kind of the, the impetus for this, podcast because jim and i had been going back and forth about um richard kelly and also um uh natural born killers and we've been trying to get him to watch it for years um and he was always scared that he was going to hate it and i saw his letterbox review and he hated it (laughs) domino you mean yeah domino and you know i get it i get it that the movie is obnoxious extremely uh, i think is your your word and um, it's just not for everybody, and I don't blame anybody that just says I can't even oh, yeah. with this thing. <laughs> I was I was talking about this movie with my with my boss when uh, the other day when we were at the coffee shop, and I and I was just sort of talking about what I've been watching. I'm like, oh yeah, and I finally got to Domino, and she was like, is it good? And I'm like, I like it. I would never recommend it to anyone who wasn't already ahead. Like if you weren't yeah, already totally. if you aren't already invested in seeing Tony Scott and what Tony Scott's career is. Like for me. Most of my enjoyment comes not necessarily from the plot, though again, I did like the first 45 minutes and the introduction of this character and just how thoroughly um, uh, Kira Knightley commits to making her just kind of unpleasant and shitty. <laughs> like, there isn't a secret sweet side to Domino. The The closest you get is that the one mean sorority girl is picking on all these other girls and Domino's the one who stands up to her and breaks her nose. Mm-hmm. But like other than that, Domino is really only interested in herself and she loves teasing like her, her, her Venezuelan uh, coworker who's just madly in love with her and crazy. And, and she's just like loves fucking fucking with his head on that. in a way. And it's just like, she's kind of a piece of shit, but like good on Kira Knightley, um, sort of right when she's coming into prominence post Pirates of the Caribbean to play a role like this. Um, uh, oh, speaking of which, uh, you brought up Jim. I have Jim's thoughts. I was supposed to read this at the top of the podcast, but I didn't. So I'm going to read this now. This okay. is Jim's thoughts on Tony Scott, and he gets into Domino here. He goes, Tony Scott. Oh, how I wish I loved his work the way a lot of people do, but I respect his boldness. Crimson Tide remains my favorite, but the last Boy Scout script is right up there, too. However, I have an aversion to the manic Oliver Stone-like music video energy he went on to embrace around the time of Man on Fire and particularly with Domino, which gave me a migraine, and I didn't care about anyone or anything while watching it. I think Unstoppable is a fitting swan song for him, even if the camera's still a bit too dizzying at times. He always keeps things moving. He makes big, dumb, thrilling, fun, escapist films in ways that don't always grate the way Michael Bay does, so I give him mad props for that. He had a remarkable knack for capturing tension on film, frequently utilizing as many as four or six cameras to capture spontaneous moments. I just think he could have used a little restraint at times, and Crimson Tide allowed for that in a confined space and setting. A lot of great actors worked with him, so I enjoy something going back to something like Enemy of the State, but every time I watch True Romance, I always wish I felt more invested in what happens by the end. There's no denying his talent, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. So anyway, that was Jim. Sorry, Jim. But I well, got just... 
Yeah, I mean, his music video analogy is not wrong. No. Um, I mean, it, it definitely amps up later on in, in his career, but even like a lot of Top Gun is a fucking music video. Oh, a yeah. lot of A lot of Days of Thunder and um, True Romance, a lot of that stuff is a music video. You cannot you cannot fine. think of Take My Breath Away by Berlin without thinking about that right. scene in Top Gun. That's exactly. that is like they had their own music video, but guess what? It's actually the scene from Top Gun is the music video. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so I do think like there's a whole stretch in the middle where you're dealing with the first ladies and there's just he and I think Tony Scott in interviews had said himself that like he Tomino kind of got away from him. He was trying to sort of capture the frenzy and the just sort of gross trashiness of the entire world of bounty hunting. Um, A big influence on the movie is when he did his research, he found out that basically all bounty hunters are on cocaine all the time. (laughs) So like he, that was definitely like important for him to capture uh, in the, in the film. And he, guess what? He does it. Um, But uh, I think that um, I, I think that it got away from him and, that if he just sort of focused on a tribute to his sort of partner in arms in terms of just being uh, like, he just found a kindred spirit in this crazy thrill seeking uh, rich girl, uh, which by, by the way, Domino Harvey was a very accomplished bounty hunter as much as you, again, I bounty hunters are fucking scum, but like she was good at it. So it's not like she was a, uh, a dilettante or anything. I don't want to, diminish her achievements in the world of tracking down poor people and sending them to jail. Um, but uh, I do think Tony Scott is someone who used his movies as a way of dipping his toe into exciting and nasty and lurid uh, worlds. And uh, I think the more he sticks with her, I think by the time they get, they circle back around to the standoff in the trailer, I'm, I'm back on board with the movie and I like it all the way through to the, uh, I like the casino shootout. I love the Tom Jones cover of Three Dog Night that yeah. is used twi- like I for me that is it is that is just like a really brilliant needle drop right there in terms of it is a very recognizable song but suddenly it just takes on so much more menace and and just dark emotion when it's paired with them just cutting off someone's arm because they misheard a phone call. Like, yeah. And needle drop is the right way to put it. It just boom. I like that too. But yeah, the, 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 the first ladies thing, like at first you're kind of interested in what's going to happen here and then getting away from him, I, I think is a good way to put it. He just loses grasp of what the movie should be about. And it, it, you just kind of lose interest and then you do. Yeah. You get back into it. But by that point, I'm almost like, eh, I'm ready to kind of be done with this. Like there's, there's all these scenes where the quote unquote, three sassy black women, um, are sort of, they're the butt of the joke. They're just sort of ridiculous people. Like, Monique says Jerry Springer is one of the only forums that our people has. It's just like such a gross, like mean spirited, like weird racist joke. And so like then later when that, whether or not her child who, who her grandchild can have an operation, like is supposed to be the emotional fulcrum. Um, you go, no, cause you, you, you didn't earn that. And also, the unspoken thing is again another very gross joke is that she's like the world's youngest grandmother, um, and the implication being that both her and her daughter got pregnant at fourteen. Yep. 
And when Delroy Lindo is the father, that means that, like, he is basically a statutory rapist. Like, and he's still in the picture as this, like, oh, you know, you know, they're still a family. And it's like, there's just so much about this movie that is so over the line and disgusting. And it's just, but again, like, the movie isn't trying to be anything else, except then when it tries to pull the emotional heartstrings, that's when you go, no, this is bullshit. I don't buy, like, Domino, like, giving all the money away and, you know, ending up going to those Afghani children. It's just like, that's bullshit. That's not what this movie is. Yeah. Um anyway, yeah. I I think Domino is it's it's an experience <laughs> more than it is a story. Um and I I I do think that there is somewhere at the heart of sort of the swirling dark uh just nastiness of it, there is just a sweetness of someone making a movie in tribute to their friend. Um and the fact that uh, the movie ends with credits. It does the curtain call credits where it shows all the actors, but it just lists them by their first name. Um, and then the last one, person who gets a curtain call credit is the actual real Domino Harvey who died before the movie came out of a drug overdose. Um, but it, like, there's this just clip right before it goes to the sort of sc- scrolling closing credits of her in extreme slow motion kind of cracking a smile and grinning as a car explodes behind her. Um, you know, clearly they engineered the shot to just be like, we're going to represent you in this one image. Like, this is what we think of you. And that it, to me, despite the fact that again, I have serious, serious, uh, reservations about who these people are as human beings, both in the movie and in real life. Like there is just something very moving about that. Um, and there is, and and there's some contradictions at the heart of, of Domino that I find very intriguing. And, I always watch movies that I find intriguing more than I watch movies that are are sort of unqualified masterpieces. Like I've seen Crimson Tide three times, but I've seen Rob Zombie's Halloween five times. And it's just like (laughs) one of those is, is a perfect film. And the other one is a movie that I can't quite wrap my head around. And turns out that's the one I always want to come back to. And Domino, you're a big, you're a big Southland tales guy, aren't you? I know exactly. Southland tales is a great example of this. Of course, Richard Kelly, the screenwriter of Domino, brings a lot of his like his interpretation of what satire is is questionable (laughs) like his it's it's some of it works in southwood tales some of it doesn't like donnie darko the stuff with the self-help stuff is just like doesn't work like he has a weird uh he has a weird approach to satire that is just this shotgun blast aim at everything and see what it hits um and that definitely applies to domino as well and it's a cool movie, um, even if it's not in my uh, top three uh, Tony Scott movies. Um, but the thing about Domino is that it was a box office failure. It wasn't necessarily like the biggest bomb in the world, but it was a big budget movie that did not make its money back. So it wasn't even just sort of a disappointment like uh, a uh, Days of Thunder. It was a bomb. Um, and I really think... Tony Scott was building to something and he sort of had this big moment, like his big coming out party with Domino. And he's like, this is who I am. And if that was a big hit, we would have seen so many more movies like Domino, 
But instead, he was like, okay, I guess I have to tuck the monster back into the box. People will not accept just the snarling. I thought maybe with the success of Man on Fire, I could get away with just being as nasty as I wanted to be in movies. But it turns out that people are not ready for it. So instead, I'm going to make Deja Vu, which has kind of a bubbly, cutesy, um, uh, feel-good ending and in general is a weird 180 from Enemy of the State where it is a movie about a omnipresent uh, surveillance state preventing Katrina, basically. <laughs> like it is, it is like, <laughs> what, if, what if the Patriot Act was so, was so good and so important that it basically was a get-out-of-jail-free card for murders? Like it's so, um, compared to his previous work, it is so bubbly and sweet that it's it. And then later on, he made taking the film one, two, three and unstoppable, which they basically feel like you ever see those movies from the seventies, the airport movies. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like those, what those movies feel like, and they have some of the cool things about those movies, but also they have the sort of just very broad, like everybody's coming together for a common goal and it's all going to turn out all right. And the movie's going to end with people in a control room, giving rounds of applause. Like, you look at that and you look at Domino and you see like that there are five years between and you're like, what the hell happened here? <laughs> um, oh, were they that far? Oh no. Yeah. Domino came out just a year before deja vu. Yeah. But so, like, fi- but like by unstoppable that, that to me is the gooeyest, like no villain that the, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a network TV like yes. movie of the night. Well, we'll get there, I guess we should. Yeah. But I, I just want to say like, I feel like Domino was the end of one period and he began another and he had all these other projects that he was going to do. It wasn't, he was just going to make train movies for his life. But the, the three next films all feel of a piece, this final you, uh, part of his career. Do you just one last thing on Domino and being a box office failure. Do you think that had anything to do with the cast? Because, you know, in hindsight, None of, I mean, Mickey Rourke was obviously at one time was a big star, and at this point in his career was kind of a resurgence, like The Wrestler was about to come out. But other than that, I mean, I know who, you know, people know who Dabney Coleman is, and Lucy Liu's in it a little bit, and Christopher Walken's in it a little bit. But, uh, like, there's no big, there's no Denzel Washington, there's no Tom Cruise, there's no Gene Hackman, there's nothing for them to, for the studio to, like, latch on to Kira Knightley wasn't I mean she was in like Love Actually and Bend It Like Beckham but I don't think she was a household name like she is no. now so I'm, I'm I don't think Kira surprised. Knightley has ever been a huge box office draw necessarily um, maybe not and certainly it's... not then right um, I think... so I wonder if that's part of it too is audiences went I don't know any of these. Where's Kevin Costner? I don't know any of these people. Yeah. I'm not going to go see it. I think Domino has the cast that it could get. Because, again, that project well, true. is yeah. so aggressive. You're not going to get Denzel. Like, Denzel Washington was on A Man on Fire. But Denzel Washington is a man that politically is a little more conservative. And it's still at the heart of it is the story of as as ludicrous as it as it is because of some of the crazy places it goes it is this story of a man being redeemed and this touching relationship between him and this young girl that he's trying to protect and everything like mm-hmm. i don't think I, I don't i definitely don't think a kevin costner is going to be in a domino i you know i when i think about the actors from that period who are guaranteed 
who are like so such gar- box office guarantees that they can push through a movie that audiences find too confusing and too off-putting to embrace. Um, I just I don't think any that. of them are going to yeah. be in it. So I think Domino just has the cast it it has, and I think I think it's a good cast. <laughs> I do too. I'm not saying it's not. Yeah. I, f- I fucking love Delroy Lindo. But you're right that it does not have the star power. brings us into sort of the final stretch of Tony Scott's career. Um, and unfortunately, the first two movies uh, kind of had behind-the-scenes stuff that hindered them a little bit. Deja Vu was a movie that went into pre-production, and they were about to start shooting, and then Hurricane Katrina happened, and then they had to sort of stop for four months, and they had to rework the script, and they had to rework shooting locations and all that sort of stuff. I think Deja Vu was actually the first movie that was shot in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and they used a lot of local New Orleans people on the crew and stuff like that, so that, that's always good. But the, the downside is that it was a movie that had to sort of be rushed back into production. It was this very narrow window. And as a result, um, the movie, despite the fact that the screenplay was written, was like, I think, was another sort of record uh, price tag for a Hollywood screenplay. I think they did the script for Deja Vu. The screenwriter got paid like four and a half million or five million or something crazy like that. Yeah, 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 for that movie. It's actually very underwritten and a little underdeveloped. And especially because it is the exact kind of material that Christopher Nolan would later like make a whole career out of. Um, you've seen movies like Tenet or, uh, or Interstellar um, or Memento, uh, which came out before this. Like you've seen how those movies can really sing with an attention to detail and like a careful setup and payoff of things early on. And then there's, there's a certain elegance that needs to happen in the structure of a movie and whether or not a movie like tenant actually has an elegant storytelling structure or whatever is a debate for another day. But like needless to say, deja vu is way too thin to have a lot of those same pleasures, which is kind of a shame because it is kind of like Tony Scott's uh, Hitchcock movie. It's half rear window and it's half uh, vertigo where they have a uh, quantum mechanics device that allows them to go back in time, but the the limitation is it's exactly, I think, like six and a half days or something in time, and they can't record anything, and they can't go forward or back. They have to just, it's just basically a window trailing behind six and a half days, so they have to pick where they're going to aim and look to investigate this um, fairy bombing that happened and in doing so, they're just going into everybody's lives, and they're going into everybody's houses, and of course, they're not. You know, there's no warrants or anything. It's it's very uh, top secret uh, sort of technology, but there's never any indication that anyone would ever use this for anything other than the protection of you know of America. And it's it's like it's like the anti enemy of the state in that way. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I really like this movie quite a bit. I, I you do, I, yeah. I I love the concept. 
I don't, I can't think of, I mean, it's a time travel movie, except not, well, it is. They're, spoiler alert. At the very end, yeah, there yeah, There is yeah. actual time travel. But for the most part, it's a time travel movie without any time travel. Um, and I found that concept really neat. Like, that's what kept the clock ticking, too, is if they miss something, they miss it. Yeah, they're always recording, like you said, but um, you can't go back and decide to look at something. So you got to be ready for it. And I, I like that idea. I love – this has one of the best chases of any movie ever – where he's chasing oh, yeah, nobody that is a good chase. from like six days ago and he has yeah. to like keep up with it. So I, I love that concept. I agree. It's kind of loosey goosey in, in places like it's not really tight, but the concept is intriguing enough. And I like watching Denzel sort of like slowly grasp what this technology is and what it can do and sort of like figure it out along with us. Um, and it does have a little bit of that Patriot Act security privacy issue going on with it um, that also makes it just a little bit ickier. Like there's a whole scene where they just watch her like walk around the house and go take a shower uh-huh. and stuff. And um, that's kind of icky, but that's sort of the point too, I think. Um, well, that I think that's maybe my main – I love the concept. And I think my main problem is it is a – it's a latter day Denzel movie. So he is just sort of unequivocally the hero. There isn't even, even as little as man on fire really cares to interrogate just how far he is taking things. Like there is at least an edge to his character in that there is a, um, sort of a nastiness and a repellent angle to his character. Whereas in this, he's just like everyone he talks to, he's just instantly like, Hey, how you doing? I, you're my friend now. And it's like, that's, I mean, that's the thing about Denzel Washington's later career is that he's everybody's dad and he's everybody in the audience's dad. So you just watch the movie hoping he approves of people. And when he disapproves of someone and then later approves of them, it's like, oh, I feel like I like I feel like my dad likes me or whatever. Like that's kind of the <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the yeah, underlying yeah. message of all it's like when Denzel Washington smiles at someone and points, you're like, ah, oh, I feel so good inside. <laughs> and in this movie, if he was able to be full Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo, like creep obsessed over this one, this dead woman. And like they, they hint at that, but at the end it's like just, Oh, it's just sweet and romantic. And, um, though I do, I do like the final, final moment sort of twist. I do like, I, I like a surprise, happy ending. Mm-hmm. Um, it, where it, you think that you get the downer ending. Um, and I, I guess this is a movie that potentially people haven't seen. And I think it's worth preserving that one uh, little twist at the end, surprise, uh, happy ending. But yep, fair enough. in general, it's, it, felt like, it felt like missed potential for me more than I, – I liked it. I like watching it. It's, it's still a Tony Scott movie. It still moves. That chase scene you called out, I totally forgot about that. That chase scene's phenomenal. Um, but it's just for me, it's just okay. It's just it's and and certainly compared to the previous uh, like sort of run that Tony Scott was on, it sort of marks the. It's a little less specific. It's got it's like a little less personality. You it it feels a little like you said like a little TV. It almost feels like a CSI procedural sort of a thing where they're just in a big control room and they're like looking over security footage yeah. and enhancing and stuff like that. Like it feels like. A lot of that in a way that I could see Deja Vu becoming a CBS show. Um, oh, totally. Yeah, which I don't know that that would be good. I would take an HBO 
yeah. eight episode show on this, but yeah, I I, I get it. it. It is a little CSI. Like they find the clues, and then when they catch up or whatever, they they find out why those clues are there or whatever. Like why this house is burned down. Um, it have you seen? There's another movie with Jim Caviezel actually called Frequency. Where he's talking to his father like fifty years ago or something, and it's kind of I have not. Fun. Oh, it's that's funny. It's him and Dennis Quaid, where he they. It's it's similar to this in a way. Like he talks to his father in the past through a weird weather phenomenon on their radio, and he they solve a crime together and stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, I I just I I've always I'm always intrigued by that concept, and I can ride that a long way and overlook a lot of flaws for, sure. for stuff like that. Um, it's yes, and it's definitely compared to like Domino and Man of Fire, it's way more saccharine. Um, that said, there's still the there's still the like frenetic editing and and like chemtrails and stuff like that, and especially when you're dealing with looking at the past it's always kind of weird they're looking at atm cameras security cameras and stuff so there's all these different film stocks that he uses so it still definitely feels like a tony scott film it's yeah. just it's just it's reined in a little bit compared to his other movies also the return of val yeah. kilmer that's true it's <laughs> true very weird val because i always just val kilmer as in in top gun is a weirdo and val kilmer in true romance is elvis it's like I think of the way Tony Scott uses Val Kilmer as just like this sort of force of nature almost. And then in Deja Vu, he's just like, hey, I think we're all out here trying to do the same thing. (laughs) Like he's just like, he's just this like government middle manager. And it's like, that's maybe the least convincing role you could give a Val Kilmer. (laughs) But it is, it is nice to see him again. I do like Adam Goldberg. He's fun. Um, It's, uh, was at, no, Adam, I was going to say, the Scott brothers did actually produce a, a CBS show. They produced Numbers. Um, oh, yeah, I remember commercials for that. Yeah, one of those. It's like a procedural thing where a mathematician is solving crimes using math or whatever. Um, and I do think I was. Tr- I was trying to remember. I don't think it's actually uh, Adam Goldberg in that. It's uh, I can't remember the name of the actor, but um, that's like that's to me is sort of what I was thinking was just sort of like oh yeah, this kind of feels like television, but. Um, Taking the poem one, two, three is if Deja Vu had to sort of have a stop-start rush production and they maybe weren't able to make the exact movie they set out to make, Taking the Pelham one, two, three is a writer's strike movie, um, which means that they basically had a first draft and it was just there was an open weekend where they had to have a movie and they had to get a product a production together in a very short amount of time in order to get a movie made to fill that weekend and to they own the rights to taking the film one two three and then that's what happened so this is a this is kind of a uninspired movie in every way yeah it's um, it's i we almost do a disservice by even discussing it it's it's true it's so it's not I, bad like um like revenge is it's just incredibly vanilla and so boring yeah. and just ruined everything about the original that was great yeah it's still watchable it's still yes. it's still denzel washington it's it's a little bit of a different role denzel washington feels very unsure and um he's doing a different thing than walter Matthau was doing walter Matthau was just sort of this guy who worked there so long he had seen it all and he's just sort of 
He's just like rolling his eyes at the idea of someone holding a subway car hostage, whereas Denzel Washington's like, I do not want to be here right now. <laughs> yep. Um, so I do like Denzel in it. I think John Travolta is absolutely horrible in it yes. in a way that I think this is what finally killed his career. Um, I think you look at the stuff he did, at, like he almost went directly to direct-to-video garbage as soon as this movie came out and – you know, of course, it's like he's he's just really, really bad in it. The other weird thing is that you don't find out who the other criminals are. Uh, Luis Guzman is plays the uh, I forget the name of the actor in the original, but uh, Luis Guzman plays like the former motorman who, uh, in the end, he's the only one left alive in the original. And this one, he's the first one to die. But like other than that, the other two guys have no personality. And it's just, yeah, I, I dug up my old row three review on this, and I just savaged the thing. But I yeah, one of the things I mentioned was. Yeah, and in that original, all of the it was almost like Reservoir Dogs. All of the the villains or the the gang guys, they all went by like color names or something like mm-hmm. that, and they all had sort of a I, I won't say a richness to them, but they had character. Where here it's just some guys. Yeah. Um, and they try to he tries to do the Gene Hackman Denzel thing from Crimson Tide because most of this movie isn't it them just talking over the radio, like right try to psych- psychoanalyzing each other and, and trying to figure out what, what the next move is. And it's so boring and just not well-written. Yeah. It's just, it just didn't, it's yeah. It's just a movie that got rushed in to, to fill a slot. And yeah. that's what it feels like. It feels like a programmer thing that you catch on HBO and you're just like, Oh, whatever, who cares? Um, it's just unfortunate. It's like we would, we would just skip right over it. Unfortunately, it's a second to last movie and it's the beginning of the Tony Scott train series (laughs) (laughs) because again like i I think i mentioned this earlier like tony scott was sort of just a joke at this point it's like oh yeah he's the guy who edits a bunch and then he makes movies about trains or whatever unstoppable though is of this series of film post domino films this is the one that is the movie it was intended to be and it is by far the best one of them uh for me i obviously deja vu has more things going on but i just like a very simple unpretentious sort of disaster movie. Um, and I like that it's all done physically. I, 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 some, I was watching this and thinking of this as Tony Scott's last film. I was wondering how would he fare in current Hollywood where everything is on green screens and everything is, you know, uh, done, done with CGI and, and, and set extensions and stuff. And like, it, 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 it feels very um, notable that Tony Scott, despite making consistently huge budget blockbuster spectacles never went hard on CGI and never went hard on uh, sort of synthetic stuff. He always actually went out and shot it. He actually like in spy game, for example, there's a scene where a suicide bomber runs into a building and Brad Pitt witnesses the building explode. And they had to make a deal with the Royal family of where of Morocco, I think is where they were shooting to buy this building in order to explode it because it was important that they really explode the building. And obviously in 2001 CGI wasn't what it was in 2010, but like it still just feels quintessential to Tony Scott's thing as a, especially as my little theory as him as like a vicarious thrill seeker, like, things actually happen in front of the camera and that's the unstoppable almost feels like a lost art. Like you look at it and you see the scene where the helicopter is suspending the guy trying to get on the runaway train. And there's like shots where you see in one shot, uh, like sort of a zoom out crash zoom out. You see three helicopters chasing a train 
as on, next to them on the other side of the frame, there's like a highway that has 15 like cop cars all speeding towards it. And it's like, I see the way all those elements are managed. And I'm like, God, that's so fucking cool. They're all there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all in camera, all practical. Uh, I, I mean, there is, I won't say a resurgence, but I feel like there is this like section of Hollywood that is sort of getting back on board with practical effects. And I know some of the star Wars stuff was that way, as crazy as that sounds. That's that's um, true. That's there, true. There is some of that, but now I think what'll be interesting is top gun two is coming out. Obviously it's not directed by oh, Tony yeah. Scott, but I'm curious to see how much of it or learn about, is it CGI or is it all practical? I'm, the trailer looks awesome. I can't wait. I, but. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be all practical. It seems like Tom Cruise is one of the guys who's really waving the flag for let's actually do let's get me on that building. Let's you know yeah yeah let's let's ride this motorcycle through these streets. Let's let's not bullshit around. Um, and we want to talk about people who uh, are who are adrenaline junkies who get to act out fantasies through their movies. <laughs> there like, you go. <laughs> that's, that's he's like Tom the poster Cruise. child of that. Totally. Yeah. And so I mean, absolutely. you might get your answer there when that movie comes out. To, this is maybe where Tony Scott would would go. Um, oh, I mean, but, definitely they would have gotten Tony Scott back to direct that. Had it, I, they've been in talks of doing a Top Gun sequel for a while. Yeah. The the, sto- the story when Top Gun originally came out was that the studio wanted to start a pre production on a sequel, and they were like, "Well, let me see all the the footage that you didn't use of the jets flying." And the editor's like, "What are you talking about?" And they're like, "Well, we're going to make a sequel." And we're we're just going to use all the leftover footage, and they're like, "There's no leftover footage. We used everything we shot." Like, you see that movie? It's all like there's so much jet action, and we used every bit of it. And so that was why they never went back to do a sequel to Top Gun, even though there was a demand. There it was just the logistics of making that movie were just way too complicated and crazy. And so it's the kind of thing that now that they can go back and they can do it. Uh, if Tony Scott was still alive, they absolutely would have done it. Um, Unstoppable has another weird uh, thing at the center of it where Chris Pine is like an abusive husband. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like that's his dark like, – like obviously you want characters to have a flaw that they overcome and it's like, oh, yeah, he learns responsibility. And like I feel like the heart of Unstoppable is this like baby boomer like – uh, having to deal with this like entitled millennial and sort of teaching this millennial work ethic and you know like no 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 you you don't get to just complain all the time you have to do it you have to earn my respect and at the end you know Papa Papa Denzel <laughs> gets his you know gives his respect and you and you feel good about it but like the choice to make like Chris Pine have a restraining order against him like he tells the story he's like very they make it very clear like I didn't hit her I didn't but like. If you were d- talking to this dude at work for real and he was telling that story and he did hit her, he would tell it the way Chris Pine tells it, you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Uh, it's it's a very odd choice. And it's just like a little hint of that, like, ooh, that's like a Tony Scott bad feeling that I'm like, oh, that's what I've been looking for. <laughs> and then once once he saves the day, then does that patch everything up with his family? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It absolutely. reminds me of um Will Patton in Armageddon, right? Like he's, oh, yeah. he's so drunk, and his mom and or his wife and his kid hate him, and and then he saves the world, and it's all good. Uh, <laughs> sort of that same idea. Um, and also, I don't know. I it's not quite the same thing, but it's it's almost like Crimson Tide, but now this time Denzel's the older seasoned yeah. veteran with all the experience for sure. And Chris Pine's the younger one, and they got to butt heads and then learn to trust each other. So here we go. 
with another Tony Scott remaking something he's already did. Yeah. Even though, except it's not. It's just, it's just those, one of these motifs and themes that he uses a lot. Except, except he, except it's a latter day Denzel Washington movie, and one of the rules of latter day Denzel Washington movies is he is unquestionably factually and morally correct in everything <laughs> yeah. he does at all times. Right. So it doesn't have that same dynamic, but it is absolutely the same uh, sort of relationship that yeah. those two share. Um, uh, yeah, but this is another one of those, aside from the fact that it's just so sweeping and like you have, all, like you said, all these practical, amazing shots, um, it, it still feels like this is something that ABC would have just you know, yeah. pumped, gotten excitement for next week on Wednesday at eight o'clock, the primetime movie Unstoppable, where a runaway train is threatening yeah, a school the- and blah, blah, blah. It feels like that sort of plot, but I, that doesn't make it any less exciting or interesting or fun. It's very Irwin Allen, um, which is, again, like that was sort of where Tony Scott was going down with the previous two movies where these like, kind of airport style disaster movie yes kind of things um but i mean he had other projects that he was working on he wanted to do a remake of the warriors in la that was something he was working on for a oh, while that would have been cool um he had a story about a uh, sub um, a sub pilot being forced by a drug lord to smuggle uh drugs into america with a submarine so that would have been like a new another crimson chide sort of a thing like um <laughs> There were some other projects that he had going on, but uh, the official story, and there was some confusion when he f- first committed suicide, so uh, it's it's a little hazy how much of this is the actual events, but uh, Ridley Scott s- spoke in an interview a couple years after the fact, in like 2014, that Tony Scott had brain cancer, um, mm. and that he was sort of you know, keeping it very private and was being very quiet about it, but that that was the sort of main motivating factor for his suicide in 2012, where he jumped off of a bridge, which, you know, not to be flippant, but like, yeah, that's how Tony Scott commits suicide. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, I, and it's, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't like to, it's funny in 2012, we were, me and Jim were co-hosts on this very podcast and Jim wanted to do a little segment where he talked about Tony Scott. And I was like, you know, I don't really know a lot about Tony Scott. And I don't, I don't like to eulogize famous people. It's just not my thing. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's very sad for his family and everything. But it's, you know, whatever. You know, Tony Scott uh, coming off of Taking the Pelham 1, 2, 3 and Unstoppable, not necessarily uh, at, the, at the peak of his career at any, at any rate. And I might have been a little callous in my response to that at the time. Um, but it is, it is. You know, it is sad and, and tragic now. You look at his yeah. his career and you you see the arc it had and you see the places that he could have kept going and how he could have kept mutating and changing. Um, despite his age, he never did stop uh, evolving. And um, No, I mean, his I, brother is, what, seven years older than him and he's still going and evolving and making interesting things. Yeah. So, um, well, it's... Uh, the last, the last, sorry, last two really quick things about Unstoppable. Number one, um, bringing it back to Quentin Tarantino. I know this is one of Tarantino's favorite modern films. Like he pray, oh, really? yeah, it's really weird. He praises this movie, and it's weird too because Tarantino, like it's completely 
the opposite of how he makes his movies, right? He sets up a camera, maybe pans it back and forth or whatever, and lets the scene happen. Whereas Tony Scott has 15 cameras all in different angles and shooting all at the same time with different sides. Like it's a completely different thing. And I think Tarantino respects that. It's like, he just made an awesome movie in a different way than I would do it. And I love it for it. So that's Tarantino's favorite movies are always a little odd. Like I think crawl was his favorite movie of like a couple years ago. (laughs) The killer alligator movies off, you know, kind of genre. Um, and then lastly, Rosario Dawson, I, she needs, I can never stop singing the praises for her. She should be in everything. Even if it's she's not a kind of a thankless role here, she's just awesome. So, I really like her and Kevin. Is it is Kevin Dunn? Who's the what's the name of the guy who's in all the HBO shows? Who is the her boss in? Oh yeah, Kevin. Uh, what is his? Yeah, I know who you're and talking he, about. Yeah, he's like one of my favorite. He's like one of my favorite, like kind of bit part character act. The kind of the kind of actor who in the '90s were were in all of these Jerry Bruckheimer movies. He is the current day like best example for me. I love him in Veep. I love him in all of these different uh, these <laughs> very similar roles where he is agitated management. <laughs> so, um, apparently, Rosario Dawson in real life is just like a big train nut, and like whenever she travels, if possible, she always takes the train. And so this was like a dream come true <laughs> role for her. Nice. Yeah, good. Good for her. Yep. I also like I also like Kevin Corrigan being introduced and you're like, oh God, he's gonna be some kind of company stooge or whatever. And he's just very he's not kind of crazy and Corrigan-y. He's just very quiet and just like kind of helpfully pipe chiming in and being like, Oh, I did, I did some calculations and <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting uh bit part for him. Oh, I we I did forgot to mention, I forget what movie he first popped in in. Uh, oh God, I gotta look up this guy. He is—he's the guy who gets his face cut off in *The Devil's Rejects*. Um, uh, and he is—he became one of Tony Scott's favorite character actors. He's in like the last five movies. He's—I think he's driving the armored car that gets robbed in *Domino*. Um, Sullivan, da, 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 Roy, no, not uh, Jeffrey Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. He looks like Spike Lou Jones. T- Lou Temple. Yeah, okay. yeah, Lou Temple is his name, and character acting is his game. Uh, he's uh, he was in all these later movies, and I, I just wanted to point out that he's in a he's he was in a whole bunch of these. Uh, he's a that guy. Later, Tony Scott. Yeah, um, I love him in Unstoppable as the guy on the truck who's just like <laughs> never gives up. It's almost what's the uh, who is it? Who plays the assistant in? Uh, oh, Matthew McConaughey in uh, Tropic Thunder, who uh, who like shows up at the end with the TiVo, <laughs> where you're yeah, like, yeah. oh, I for- I forgot he was in the movie. That's like kind of uh, this guy in Unstoppable, where you just forget he's in the movie, and then he just shows up in his truck. He's like, I'm still going, <laughs> and he saves the day. Yes. Hmm. Anyway, uh, that's, that's a hell of Tony's, a career. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a career, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, going through it for all of its ups and downs. Um, a very interesting artist um, who definitely, through his time the, through the '90s all the way to 2010, um, sort of it is a certain history of Hollywood of how the Hollywood blockbuster sort of rose and uh, fell. Because by the time you get to sort of his low point at the end of his career. That is the new rise of the, uh, of the superhero movie. But, you know, you want to know how the modern 
blockbuster in at the late 20th century happened. You follow it from Top Gun to True Romance to Crimson Tide and Enemy of the State, you know, and then all the way into its own, he, you know, his own territory with Man on Fire and Domino. It's very mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Uh, what are your top three Tony Scott movies? Uh, Crimson Tide 3, Top Gun 2, and Last Boy Scout 1. All right. I think for me, my favorite is Crimson Tide, followed by The Last Boy Scout, followed by Enemy of the State. Oh, really? Not True Romance? No, a True Romance is really cool, but there's just some big qualifiers there. Gotcha. You know what? It's it, eh, it, They're they're neck and neck. I'd say they're tied. My, my true, when you bring it up. Yeah, True Romance is my number four, so it's right there. Um, right. Thank you so much, Andrew. Now, you're not on a podcast anymore. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug? No, I got nothing to plug. I mean, you can follow me on Letterboxd if you want, Andrew underscore James. But other than that, I am not... Not doing much. Row three is still there. Like the lights are on. It's just nobody's home. So if you want to listen to any old podcasts, I'm sure if you wanted to search for them, Kurt and I get into Tony Scott movies. Those are always fun once. if you go back and listen to old podcasts and you get a time capsule of yeah. like, this is how people talked about movies in 2008. It turns yes. out it's, act- <laughs> totally. it's actually, believe it or not, it's very different from the way people talk about movies now and it's mm-hmm. it's always fun to go back and listen to those so old podcasts. that's there but otherwise i am just uh you know living life awesome and i'm gonna be right here uh next month we're doing wong car Y, another yeah. filmmaker i'm gonna see if i can see all of his movies i got that criterion box set, you did so i'm waiting for I'm, I'm waiting for that barnes and noble sale and yeah, i'm picking that I thing got, up i'm excited i'm gonna i'm gonna say here's my caveat with that barnes and noble box uh or with that uh criterion box set the packaging is very irritating. They do not have simple cases where the DVDs go in. It's all these like it's this complicated like waxy cardboard book that has these sleeves that come out, and you have to like sort of poke the discs out of them. Oh, I don't like that. It's really like sometimes Criterion they just do too much these days. Also, but, uh, as a caveat to that, I also have read that they've um, for these releases they've messed with the, some of the color timing. Yeah, uh, they. Wong Kar Wai, he, they couldn't find some of the footage from uh, Happy Together, so some of the scenes are cut. It's not a complete version of the movie. He re- slightly reframed some stuff, changed some credits around. It's a whole thing. I'm sure I'll get into You'll it get into next it. time. <laughs> um, but until then, I have no sign-off phrase, so my sign-off phrase is going to be me saying I have no sign-off phrase. <laughs> <laughs>